In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1548 to 1562. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1548. Story number one. It wasn't designed to do this, but that doesn't mean it can't. Written by Writer Unblocked. Standing at his helm, Ryan Donato felt the sense of disappointment creeping into the back of his mind. He knew that he was the captain of a C-class cruiser at the bleeding edge of human space travel technology. He knew the ship's specs made it capable of moving thousands of times faster than any vehicle he'd driven back on his homeworld. And he knew that he was spitting on those numbers anyway. It didn't matter because he couldn't feel it. The artificial gravity kept his feet firmly planted and his sense of balance from being remotely shifted by moving at these offensive speeds. He couldn't even see it. The empty black expanse gave no indication of relative speed. Captain! A high voice came in front of him and below brought him back from his musings. The hostile ship is within scan range again. They're still gaining on us. Multiple voices could be heard murmuring as they heard the navigator speak. What have we got on it? Appearance and frequencies are definitely Vrates, which explains why we can't outpace them, even with whatever black magic the mechanics are doing down there. Vrates, what the feck are they doing out here in this belt? There was a silence following him. He didn't expect an answer, though. Another thought quickly formed. Do we know anything about its defenses, sir? He felt the eyes turn to face him. He had clearly chosen to fight earlier. Fight was no longer an option. Did I stutter? What do we know about their defenses? Well, uh, they're blocking our scans, but what we have based on our experience is that they primarily use an alloy similar to metal we discovered on Ceres. As for shields, the radiation we're reading shows that they're pretty clearly powered by crystalline fusion. He stood silently for a minute as his mind raced. Wait! So, shouldn't a T-driver Brown punch right through that? Damn right, sir. An excited voice came from a communicator. The display readout showed that it came from one of the ship's gunners. That said, sir, the big guns are front-mounted, and I'm pretty sure that these guys are still riding our rear. Leave that to me, gang. You just have your fingers on the triggers. When you see something to shoot, don't let up until you don't anymore. Roger that. He could hear a smile on their faces. Tapping a few times on his Honda display, Donato set himself to speak directly to the lead mechanics communicator. Magira, can I get you to the bridge quickly? Within a minute, a short and thin but well-muscled redhead was standing in front of him. She was covered in sweat and scowling hard. Sir, cut the formalities, Meg. You know I hate it. Fine, then, Ryan. You asked me to do the impossible earlier. Making the ship go fast is practically offensive, but it's not easy. We didn't just step in another pedal. It's an intense eight-body job, and I'm one of the eight. Can you make us stop? Uh, she never knew how to handle her captain, and she'd grown accustomed to him saying the impossible, like he was ordering a drink. But this still made her recoil slightly. St stop Yeah, full stop. Why? Her body shook as she soared. We are dumping and arm near all of our fuel to go even this fast. But this still isn't enough. Now you still want us to stop. Why the actual feck would you want that? Because it's the last thing they'd expect. He turned away from her instantly and directed himself at the navigation again. Speaking of, how much time have we got? Be pessimistic. 
If we're right about the ship's model, they'll be firing range within a few more minutes at most. Meg, I want us behind them so Red Jack and the goon squad can tear that thing in half. For that to happen, I need just to stop. I know I asked a lot for you to even make this happen. If it's literally impossible, I'll think of something else. But this is what I have right now. Is it possible? His demeanor managed to calm her down. I, I, I mean, uh, I, uh, feck, she stammered for a few seconds before her eyes lit up. Yes, actually, we, we've even kind of got it set up. If we have someone... She was cut off by Dementor, raised a hand to silence her. Don't tell me, tell the ship. A few taps and swipes on the display, and he was broadcasting to the entire ship. Attention, I'm going to give comms to lead mechanic Magera. She's got an idea that'll hopefully get us out of this crap. Whatever she says needs to happen as soon as she says it. A few more taps and Magera felt her communication ping. She's all yours. Listen up. In that moment, a wave of euphoria hit her. Mechanics loved to joke and talk about how they could handle a ship better than any captain. She'd been given the chance to prove it. I need bodies in every section to get the emergency fire triggers. We're going to shut down and starve the entire ship. Ping the bridge when you're in position. On my mark, everyone hit the suppression system. Mechanical. Make sure any fuel gets redirected to the front-facing thrusters and burn it hard. There was a minute of silence as Megara and Ryan stared at the bridge display, waiting to see each section light up. Megara had deafened herself to verbal communication, thanks to her mechanical crew screaming every curse they knew. She understood. She'd be doing the same if she was still down there. She knew that they'd get the job done, though. She took a deep breath as the last section lit up in green. Hold on to something, folks. We're going to test the laws of physics with this one. She waited another moment before she counted. One, two, three, hit it. There was a loud squealing as the fire gel instantly expanded throughout the ship, followed by a powerful roar as the front thrusters exploded and burned through several times the amount of fuel that they should ever receive. There was a moment where the gravity generators seemed to be able to handle the strain. But soon... They gave out and reset. Everyone not bolted down or wrapped up around something was pitched forward. Then, a streak of color raced past clearly doing its very best to also slow down. Unfortunately for it, that only made it an easier target. After the weapon stopped firing and the groans of his crew subsided, Ryan finally tapped back into the ship-wide communications. I know that sucked, but thank you, all of you. We're still alive because everyone on the ship is a badass. Mechanical, I know I owe every one of you a lot of drinks when we get back home. Get us back to Halcyon and I'll try to get you crazy bastards into that bar only officers can go to. And yes, it does exist. End of story. Story number two. Terran soil ridden by provisional rebel. The Federation, and by extension the humans, had won the war. Many planets had changed hands, some systems taken as spoils of war, others being liberated after many long years of occupation. The terms of the treaty were harsh, but why would they be anything else? The Federation were the victors, able to set the terms. Many of the member states made impressive gains, except the humans. Their demands were strange. No one would question their bravery, their courage, and perhaps most of all, their insidious guile. But the demands seemed almost timid. 
That last quality was a cost what everyone assumed was at play when they asked for a small land grants on formerly hostile worlds where the troops had taken part in the battles. They wouldn't need to expand energy rebuilding a world's infrastructure and economy when they could just set down a military fortifications and become the de facto occupation without binding legalese. There was some kind of bickering when they also demanded the same allowance on worlds claimed by other federal powers where their troops had fought, but, ultimately, it was accepted. After all, having a human fortress on their worlds would only bolster their ability to keep the newly conquered population in line. The only problem was that no fortresses were ever built. Most enemy worlds under human occupation simply avoided the enigmatic overlords and lived as they always had, while the humans labored away on whatever work they had begun. Some resisted the humans, seemingly just out of the need to show resistance because they hadn't given them a reason to. But the humans did not crush them as the other powers would. There were no railgun darts from orbital platforms, no retaliatory strikes. The humans just informed the world that they were not under occupation and that their local government was in control except for a small piece of land where the humans worked. That was Terran soil. So life went on. Eventually the humans completed their work and all but a handful of troops departed back to their own systems. Eventually, some locals worked up the courage to try and see what the humans had been building all this time. It was... Uh, underwhelming. Instead of Grand Fortress, there was a simple barracks building and a guardhouse at the gate in a fenced-off area that stretched almost the entire region the humans had claimed. There was a pair of soldiers at the gate but they were not the hulking brutes in powered armor that had fought in the war. They were in dress uniform, standing out in the open, still armed with rifles, of course. But even they were different. They looked ancient, with wooden stocks. Behind them, a road leading into the grounds was lined with poles, each bearing a different and often colorful flag. Beyond that, there were only stones, thousands of simple white stones, each equally spaced, they rose perfectly symmetrical, so that each seemed to simply blend into the next. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1549 Divert all power we can from life support to engines. Written by Random3x Report on the rescue efforts of Arthur Rostron et al. 032 April 15th Captain Rostron woke with a banging on the airlock to his personal quarters early in the daily cycle. He'd been only asleep for a couple hours and was far from pleased at being awoken at this hour. Rising from his bed, still in his underwear, he pressed his hand against the control plate and slid the door open. In front of him was one of the comms officers looking distressed. So we have an emergency distress beacon, the comms officer hastily explained at such a speed he had to take a deep breath and repeat himself, Sir... We have an emergency distress beacon. Those words alone broke the captain out of his sleep-induced stupor. Robot! He barked. We have a beacon from a passenger liner that they have been in a serious collision with a rogue asteroid. They reported that they're venting atmosphere and are unable to repair and recover the ship due to catastrophic damage. The comms officer explained. So she's void sinking? He asked to confirm, to which the comms officer nodded. Seems that way, sir, he replied. How far away are they? The captain demanded. Roughly four and a half hours, sir, the comms officer replied, 
reading a few pages from the clipboard he had no doubt calculations made by the navigation officer. How many souls are on board? he asked. Data and distress beacon sent state in nearly two and a half thousand, the comms officer replied, his complexion going pale at the thought. Right, Captain said, putting on only a t-shirt and heading for the bridge as fast as a calm as he could manage. Arriving at the bridge, he found his night officer looking at him as if waiting for his orders. I want a full about onto the heading towards that ailing ship, he roared. Sound a general alarm. I don't care if the ship crew is on. We are all working to rescue as many people as we can. Is that clear? The captain's voice boomed. Yes, sir. Everyone presented chorused. Hank, you take the general crew and get them ready for lifeboats. I want them ready for deployment the moment we arrive in system. The first officer saluted, acknowledging the order and running off. Diggory, I want you to get every engineer and maintenance crewmen to get the engine and reactor rooms and put every ounce of energy we can into powering them. Push them if you have to. The chief engineer saluted and ran off, dragging a few bleary-eyed engineers who had come to the bridge to find out why everyone was yelling. Can we get a grav netting at the ready? There may be passengers trapped in the void, and we need to help them out if we can, the captain asked, turning to his second officer. The officer just nodded and snapped his fingers at the crewman, telling him to go wake everyone else and do as ordered. God, we can only hope we can make it in time, the captain muttered as he sat down in each chair for what was no doubt going to be a long night. Lower the blast shields. We don't want to stray comments or debris delaying us, the captain ordered, to which the thick ceramic plating descended with a metallic screech over the viewports of the entire ship. 0130, 15th April the central atrium was filled with all the passengers who had been woken up by the general alert that was blaring. What is the meaning of this? One of the more well-dressed passengers demanded to the flustered crew who were limited in response that they could give. Walking out of the main doors arrived Captain Rostrum flanked by two security officers. Stepping onto the entertainer stage, he approached the microphone and tapped it twice, eliciting a tone out of the speakers. Hello everyone, I'm Captain Rostrum. I am aware that you are concerned about what is going on. I'm here to explain what is going on, he announced, which caused the passengers to all ask questions simultaneously, making a cacophony of noises. Quiet! The captain roared without needing the microphone. Its force was such that everyone present swallowed their words. At approximately 0.15 this morning, we received a distress beacon from a passenger liner that is void sinking. We are currently en route on an on-rescue mission, he announced, to which the crowd began to stir. Is, uh, no one closer? One of the passengers asked. Does it matter? The captain asked right back, which caused the passenger to retreat half a step. Should we begin void sinking, would you rather have as many ships come to our aid or restrict the possibility? The captain's pointed question silenced all who wanted to change back onto the actual course. I'm going to ask you for your aid and assistance. From the reports we have, it is possible that there are over 2,000 people in danger. We are setting up a triage centers in the dining halls. We could use people who wish to help prepare food, hot drinks, and blankets. Life rafts don't always have insulation, and some of these people may have been exposed to space itself, the captain explained. Many of the faces in the crowd began to go pale at the very idea of this happening to anyone. After a few moments, hands began to rise, and then more rose, till eventually everyone held their hand up, ready to volunteer. The captain looked down at the unified goal. No class, no race, just the will 
to save lives. Are there any doctors? He asked, and a few people stepped forwards. Please follow the medical officer over there, and they will get you kitted so out so we can provide medical care if needed. The captain said, gesturing to a man in a lab coat standing by the door. Next, I'll explain what we are going to be reducing life support systems to a bare minimum. The captain explained. Why? One of the passengers asked. We are currently running at capacity of energy our reactor can provide to the engines. I'm going to reduce all but the essential areas for the duration of travel to ensure that we arrive sooner rather than later. The captain explained, to which everyone present seemed to accept. It will get cold, it will get uncomfortable, but I hope that we can agree that it is a small price to pay, even if it means that we arrive five minutes earlier, because there may be another life saved in those five minutes, the captain said with a genuine gratefulness in his voice. 0230, April 15th. Captain, the engines weren't designed to output this much thrust. The voice of the engineering officer came out of the internal comms, Diggory, try to keep her running. I will take responsibility if it ends up needing to be scrapped. But I don't want to waste a single second here. The captain replied. Hi, sir. Understood. Diggory's voice replied in a frustrated but understanding tone. Sir, is this necessary? One of the deck crew asked. No one would fault us for maintaining a cautious approach. This is, after all, a sector known for asteroids. The officer continued. Yes, Smith, it is. As I said to the passengers, if it were us, I would want our rescuers to make no restrictions. I would want them rushing to our aid as fast as they can. It would be selfish for me not to reciprocate what I expect in return. The captain explained, looking at the officer who turned back to his display. Reaching for a microphone for the intercom system, the captain pressed down the speech button. This is your captain speaking. We have received word that the general emergency supplies and stations are set up. For this, I thank you. I will now ask all passengers to remain in either the atrium or the dining halls until we arrive. All life support and lighting will be shut off in the remainder of the ship, the captain announced, turning to one of the deck crew, who nodded and began shutting down systems. 0330, April 15th. We've arrived in system, sir, navigations officer announced. All on the bridge were elated. Some were even doing a little fist pump. They had done what no doubt would be classed as a miracle of a rescue effort. They had traveled the distance their ship should have only been able to manage in four hours within three. Open blast shields, I want to see what we've arrived to, the captain said. With a metallic groan, the blast shields that had been down since they set off began to rise. The sight before them made everyone present freeze in shock. They could see the lifeless husk of the passenger liner split in two. Floating in space around the husk was a sea of people. Report! The captain ordered, in a voice warbling from barely restrained emotions. We detect lifeboats, sir. There are survivors, the scanner officer announced. There was an audible breath of relief. And the people in the void? The captain asked. The scanner reports that not all have life vests on, sir. The captain swallowed audibly at this response. What are the ones with life vests? Do they still have oxygen? He asked, hoping against hope that they could save more lives. I'm sorry, sir, but there don't appear to be any life signs. This is a graveyard that we are witnessing. The scanner officer replied, his voice cracking at the announcement. The captain could feel his heart stick in his throat, wondering if only he were faster, if only he had made his decision or that decision. But he couldn't rest on his guilt now.
Power up the life support systems. Call all men to active quarters. We are bringing the survivors in. Is that clear? The captain asked. The crew, as they had at the start, all chorused, Yes, sir! 12.20, April 15th. That is the last of the passengers that we left to be rescued, sir, the first officer announced as they watched the last lifeboat land in the hangar. What are the totals? The captain asked. Not the 2,208 souls. There are a total of 705 survivors, the first officer replied, biting his lower lip. So many lives, the captain said, a tear welling up in his eye. Walking through the halls and dining rooms, he could see the rescued passengers being looked after by the passengers of his ship. Some offering comfort, others offering spare clothes. No one was found without showing their truest humanity. We failed, Hank, the captain muttered, lowering his head. Sir, the first officer asked. We didn't save enough lives. We failed, the captain lowered his lip, trembling. Sir... There's an old quote that my rabbi would read to me when I wondered if the little good I did was enough. The first officer began. When he was sure the captain was paying full attention to him, he began. Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do good now. Walk justly now. No one is expected to complete the work, but neither may anyone desist from it. The first officer looked at the captain. Sir, what matters is you tried. You went above and beyond what anyone could expect. You made a miracle happen by sheer force of will. You persuaded all of our passengers to do the right thing. The human thing. Yes, we didn't save everyone. But we still saved 705 people. That number may have been less if we had arrived later. The first officer finished his speech and felt the captain's hand rest on his shoulder. Thank you, Hank. The captain said with a genuine gratefulness as tears welled up in his eyes. End of story. I just quickly want to thank the Tier 5 patrons and channel members. Alithia Barkey, Cam Maxwell, Caspar Arnholtz, Albarden Guster, Arcadian, Lord Azrakal, and Joachim Bakker. Tales from Outer Space 1550. Story number one. Binding the line between medic and necromancer. Written by writer at Blocked. The various murmuring voices around me had become one sound that filled the auditorium. As I looked around to see just who and what had come to watch, I chuckled a little. Back home on Earth there had been a time when people went to watch court trials. It was one of the very few forms of entertainment back then. The time of court battles being a spectator sport had come and gone, however. And yet, here I was. The building was indistinguishable from a stadium where sports could be played. I wouldn't have been surprised to learn people had sold tickets to this. Humans are always very good for a show. Five bodies appeared atop the podium in front of me. The swarming sound of voices quickly dwindled as different appendages were raised. There will be silence in the hall. The command was quickly obeyed. None of the creatures seemed to have spoken. I assumed there was one that didn't have a mouth as I knew it. Its psychic or telepathic projections had been sent through the translator. The accusing party declared the case for this court and counsel's appearance. The human known as Marcus Wayne is accused of necromancy by way of reviving the corpse of fellow human Todd Malcolm. 
My eyes rolled reflexively as I heard the word necromancy for the nth time this week. The tall purple thing to my right had kept its composure, but there were clear signs of its hostility. How do you plead, Marcus? Not guilty. It took a lot of willpower to not add obviously to the end of my statement. There was another round of murmuring, which was quickly shut down by another wave of raised appendages. Very well, accuser. Proceed. Thank you, counsel. The tall purple thing stepped forward, and an image was projected above us. It depicted me leaning over a younger man, giving him CPR. Human anatomy dictates that the heart is a crucial organ. It works to move vital fluids throughout the body. If it stops, the body dies. Its pause seemed to be for dramatic effect. Humanity might have been new to the galactic scene, but what it was saying was still common knowledge. Todd Malcolm's heart had stopped, therefore his body was dead. The fact that Marcus Wayne's actions led to the revival of another human is clear proof of necromancy. I groaned and rubbed my temples. On paper, that logic was sound, save for the fact that they were missing several pieces of information. Human Marcus, you seem to have a defense. Yes, counsel. I was motioned to take my own turn. I won't deny my accuser's claim that I acted to save my fellow man's life. However, I was cut short by a spark of conversations. This time, they took a moment to realize that they were being silenced. However, the heart is not the only organ critical to human survival. Our torso is full of critical organs. If our lungs stop filtering oxygen, we can die. If our stomachs stop processing food, we can die. Declaring CPR as necromancy would, by extinction, make the same claim of almost all humans' medical practices. It is our understanding that among your critical organs, the heart is above them all, my accuser interjected, clearly trying to keep his footing. Granted, our hearts are very important. There is, however, an even more important organ. This time, I paused for effect. I'd apparently overestimated the crowd. This place of information visibly rocked the stadium. It's called the brain. If you imagine the human body as a computer, the brain is the CPU. Todd's heart had stopped. I won't deny that. I knew, though, that I'd gotten to him quick enough that his brain had not yet died. CPR is a means of keeping the heart and lungs working to keep the brain alive. I didn't revive him. I kept him from dying until someone better qualified and uh, better equipped could solve the problem that almost killed him. He was as good as dead. The natural order had decided his time had expired. Your intervention prevented that. Is that not necromancy? Maybe. But then you should be on trial, too. Why? CPR, in a way, is a very crude version of the injections your species uses in the heat of battle. Its coloring flashed to a bright green, a clear sign of anger. We are alive and capable of making the choice to use the injectors. Todd Malcolm was in no such state. So your entire species makes a conscious choice to defy the natural order. Isn't that worse than me violating and on another's behalf? The place erupted into noise. I knew I'd crossed the line with the last point, but I didn't care. If this thing was going to let its professionalism fall apart... I wasn't going to keep stepping on eggshells either. There will be silence in the hall. Several of the council's voices poured out of the translator. Apparently, they'd been unable to silence the room with a gesture alone. Both of you were refrained from further upbursts. Is that clear? 
Yes, Council. We both responded in unison. Good! The Council will now speak. The one in the middle, who didn't actually have a mouth to speak, stood up. It would be noted that human science is still the answer away from achieving true reanimation in any form. They are also completely incapable of etheric manipulation. If this act is deemed a form of necromancy, it is one achieved through nothing more than physical capability. I felt a gaze on me specifically. Based on research we have done, it is a rather taxing process too, isn't it? Yes, Council. Considerable force is required to make the heart and lungs do anything useful. I knew I could leave it there, but I wanted the fraud of audience again. They were here for a show, after all. When learning CPR, we're told that we should try and crack the ribs with each compression. Better to be alive and injured than dead. I could feel a wave of shock spread around me like a plague. I've even heard of rare, terrible circumstances where the one administering CPR had to do so for so long that they passed out from the exertion. They were exaggerations, but still technically the truth. The whispering picked up again, and I could barely keep myself from grinning like an idiot. Humans try to injure each other while they save their lives. The act is so tiring, even a human can be brought down by it. Silence! The head of the council was clearly running out of patience. This council has made its decision. All of them stood or rose into the air. Marcus Wade, and by extension, the entire human race will not be found guilty of necromancy. I tuned everything out after that. I didn't really care how or why they came to the verdict. Those were concerns for people who got paid a lot more than me. I just leaned back in my chair and flashed the accuser a smug look while thanking God I didn't need to try and explain cryogenics. End of story. Story number two. The Great Outguns the Human's Natural Weapons Debate. Written by Everyone Gay. Hey, Dave. They're talking about you on the Culture and History channel. What? Me? Well, not you as you. I mean your species. Huh. Uh, what are they saying? Something about natural weapons. Come and take a look. Dave and his friends, he shared with a flatworth, walked over to the other room, where the hollow monitor they both paid good money to buy was. The show set was amphitheatric, like a galactic council hall, with a live audience seated where the council members would be. At the center of the set, on the ground level, were two opinionists discussing animatedly. Why are we even debating? Impatiently said the Fossif, a hulking mountain of fur and muscle with four sharp-clawed fingers at the end of each of his thick limbs. They are not part of their bodies, and they are not even born with them. They craft them like everyone else. Therefore, their guns are not natural weapons. Most of that is true, my dear Fnaf. replied the Crackdoll, who sat across him, a tall and slender reptilian with long, venomous fangs. The point I want to make is that they're good, too good with them. While the average soldier requires several months' worth of intense training just to be able to properly aim one, humans can do better in just a dozen cycles of daily practice, as you are surely aware of. They even have units that specialize on picking off important targets from great distance. No other species can even hope to achieve such accuracy without considerable cyberware implants. I'll pass the palm of one of his many pseudo hands onto the old scar on his left temple for a moment. <laughs> yes, I have. 
Well, that does not disprove any of my points. I was kindly given access to the anthropological section of their archives, and I can confirm the reasons why they are so good with guns is because aiming is ingrained into their brains. It is natural to them. They've been throwing things since before being considered sapient, as their only means of self-defense. Where are you trying to go with that? The fossil was now visibly annoyed. Let me finish. On top of what I've just said, they've developed ranged weapons far earlier in history than any other known civilization. For this, I dare claim that we might be in front of the first recorded case of naturally engineered weapons. Preposterous! Thundered you have. Out of all of your absurd theories, this has to be the most foolish. I think not. If guns weren't their natural weapons, would they have still managed to repel an invasion so early in their space age? I'll admit that it helped greatly that you fossils are pretty big and relatively slow-moving targets. Oh, now you've done it, you expletive spawn of the expletive! Your fathers, I'll turn your innards inside out! said Yahav, as he got up from his undersized armchair. I'd like to see you try, hissed the crackle, also getting up. Hmm, uh, they really do hate each other's guts, uh, Do they fight often? asked Dave. Uh, they talk smack but never actually do anything. I, I think it might be mostly for the show, replied his friend. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1551 At the Bottom of the Spine, written by Ruby Spicer The Zyorians were a small race, half the average size of a human man, around 90 centimeters high. They were plenty capable of digging the mines themselves with equipment, but this mine was rather shallow by Zyorian mining standards, and they weren't permitted the budget for it. Privately, the foreman thought that it was because the government wanted to extract as much profit possible from the palladium and platinum. They had a history of cutting corners. So in came the humans with digging machines of their own, but also pickaxes and shovels and good old-fashioned muscle. And once the workers themselves got the tracks set up and the mining could begin in earnest, the Zyorian officials were eager to hire a large group of humans to get the work done as quickly as possible. Of course, because there were already advance orders for what metals were coming out. None was so memorable to the foreman as the giant, a man who was at least ahead over the rest of the humans, who was not boisterous and talkative as the rest of his kind, who weren't shy about getting to know the Zyorians, how often did one meet another race with a second set of eyes? His name was long and complicated, so the foreman marked him down simply as John. If he disliked that, he never said so. He responded to it, so everyone came to think it was actually was his name. Most of the time, he'd take his breaks alone, just watching the sunset or looking at the stars, or looking at some wrinkled picture in his pocket. His mother, he said, when they asked who it was, very sick, but he had no more on her. The few times he did speak up on his own about things, it was always about the mine or the job. Grounds soupy, water's running nearby, big shaft there, let them step over it, let me carry that for you. No amount of kindness could erase the ineptitude, or what some called the outright maliciousness of the Zyorian government though. Miners quit but there would always seem to be plenty of Zyorians to replace them. 
desperate for better wage than mining work paid. Though, as time passed, less and less humans came back. Cracked timbers, frayed ropes, bad falls, one incident after another kept happening. And yet, the only fixes seemed to be temporary. Hewins, John, was prompted to say once, didn't tend to put up with such workplace conditions. We went through enough of that ourselves. They asked why he put up with it, but all he said was, Somebody gotta do it. I'm telling you, we're really onto something here. One of the smaller Zyorian workers raised a chunk of platinum. They're going to make a fortune on it, and you aren't getting any. It was break time, and the Zyorians were sitting around with one of their rations, chatting about the latest fine. Hell with that, said the first worker. I'll hide a few chunks on me. They won't miss a little bit of it. Put it in your work boots, though. They search pockets. They'd hit a new vein, deep, deep mine, and when previously they thought the current one was tapped out. That would mean more equipment and a larger budget, and hopefully less injuries. John hadn't said anything yet. He was seated off to one side, looking up at the rough corridors towards the surface. I'll have to break this apart then. We can't all be John with these giant boots. Plenty of room in those to store stuff away. He could practically shove enough to buy his own ship in those enormous things. John stayed silent. His head was cocked to one side. It didn't appear to hear the laughter echoing around him. Get up! Huh? One of the others turned his second set of eyes to John's direction. You need to get up now! John bellowed this time, and the others shrunk back. While there had been one or two times he chanted, it was never like this. He stood up, but no sooner had he done so was there a loud crack. The timber, not even twenty feet away, completely buckled. Everyone leapt to their feet then. But then the fastest one there couldn't make it past before what a V-shaped section of wood bent nearly to the floor. I knew this was going to happen. I knew it, shrieked one of the others. The damn government can't spare one stinking silver clike for safety, but I bet their strips have platinum plating. Rage came first, then sorrow. Weeping soon followed, with wails about children or spouses or sweethearts. Everyone was panicked. Everyone feared for their lives. Everyone except John, the foreman, who had been praying to the god he swore to his mother he did not believe in, begging forgiveness for letting things get so far, found himself nudged by the giant. Take this for me. He looked up as best he could into those dark eyes of John's and found them glassy, but not sad. And he realized what the giant was trying to hand him was the picture the picture he'd always carried around, the one of his mother. Dull er, I'm sorry. For what, John? What are you? John strode past the huddling group, right up to the broken timber, bent over. You're gonna kill us even faster if you touch that thing, one of the Zyorians in the back shouted. Rather dead flat, fast, then suffocate, someone else hiccuped. While they knew the strength of humans was greater than their own due to their size and muscle mass, it was one thing to see them hauling and quite another to see them lifting. The Zyorians watched in a strange, fascinated horror as a single man lifted the timber up and onto his shoulders. John's meteor hands moved under the wood, though he planted his feet and with a groan gave a huge shove and brought the timber back up. 
It shifted and threatened to fall again, but he leaned slightly and let the weight fall on his shoulders. Go! John shouted. He would not need to shout again. The Zyorians scrambled out, leaving behind their tools and equipment, even the scraps of platinum that they had scattered around. They ran such as they had never needed to run before, shouting all the time about the cracked timber and the fading supports. Had they had the time to look, they would have seen similar failures happening all around them. But at last, they were all out, waving arms and shouting about danger below. I told them that we needed more supports, the foreman shouted, tossing his helmet to the ground. We're going back down. We'll just have to use the supports that we're going to use for the next end. There was a rumble then, one that seemed to stretch up and twist their insides. The four humans still on staff on top went for the minecart and were about to enter when there was another rumble. A sickening shower of powdered stone and metal issued out of the mine entrance. There was one human in the group of four wearing a hat that he did something the foreman had never seen before. He took his hat off and held it over the left side of his chest. The thin, sickly-looking woman had come. She couldn't have weighed more than 90 human pounds and looked as though that she could barely get to her feet. But she was there, and she was going to take her rights as a mother and sole victim to speak before the court. They did not speak the Terran language she did, but the translators were on standby to record and send text to the judge what was being said. Here, the court had slapped a profanity warning on the transcript. My son is dead at the bottom of a mine because you couldn't see farther than your goddamn wallets. Because you had wobbles where your fecking hunt should be. She was already wheezing but waved off the concerns of not only the nurse at her side but also the judge and kept on going. I'm going to tie you up in so much goddamn red tape that your grandchildren are going to be scared of a word lawyer. I am going to get the MSHA so far up your ass you'll be barfing warning stickers for. She started coughing at this point, and the nurse at her side finally convinced her to sit back down. But she kept her word. In the end, they were all able to negotiate with her lawyer. The expensive care John had been working to pay for her illness they would now fully cover, and the entire mining site was turned over to the Terran company that had an excellent reputation with the M. Shah, and came offering memberships to something called a union. But most noticeably, and the thing that would last much longer than the mining operation itself, was a white stone stand that was placed just outside the new entrance to the mine, with a single sentence written on it in both English and Zyorian. At the bottom of this mine lies a man who made his mother cry, so that ours did not. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1552 Warrior Cultures Are Obsolete Written by JCB112 The wool of the pack is dead, and I will tell you why. We have believed for millennia now that the only true forces capable of ruling over the galaxy are those who willful enough to stand by the will of the blade. We 
have crafted a culture, a society that cherishes this tradition. To live by the blade and to die by the blade. Strength is respected and weakness is cast out. That's how it should be, shouldn't it? We climbed up to the position of apex predator, not by lounging about or writing poetry, but by seizing our strength, our brute force, and by clawing our way to the top. How else should society function? A democracy? The world of the sheep electing the weakest of the meek? A corporate oligarchy? Where all the world of the coin outweighs the strength of the ruler? A theocracy? Where the misplaced faith in some imaginable god is to save oneself. All of these governments have fallen to the will of the pack. Worlds raided, territories torn asunder, our claws rubbing through flesh and steel alike. We have no equal in the field of battle, and we care not for the frivolousness that comes with contemporary civilization. That is, until we encountered them. They were everything we had dreamed of. Sheep, prey, and so tightly packed into a neat little pen, a pen they called Sol. They did not scatter like the rest of the prey into the stars on board tiny little habitats. No, they clumped together like the Praetor on our old home, packed into caves and warrens that we would easily flush out for an easy feast. This uh, humanity as they called it, would suffer the same fate, and would surely bring about victory for my clan and my empire. Or so I thought. For that was our first mistake. I called upon their greatest champion. They sent us their weakest sickling. They presented us with an ultimatum to halt our advances, to stop our expansion, to return to our homes. The arrogance of such a creature... A small, sickly thing ordering the great Ital Honai to stop. It was laughable, and we slew their so-called envoy with ease. That was our second mistake. Bar as soon as the envoy was slain, so too would the ship worlds we carried to the outer reaches of Sol be destroyed. At the time, I reported them to the Emperor's merely disloyal renegades, leaving the greater pack for some smaller pirate band. On reflection, I know now this proclamation was done because I simply could not accept it. I simply could not accept the fact that such a sickly and small creature with no honor and strength could repel an armada that had in their prime taken down the Linoleum Confederacy. This was our third mistake. We refused to see them for what they were. Demons! Soon enough, the war spread to our conquered territories. One by one, they took away what we deemed as inconsequential losses. A trade port here, a commercial center there. They were taking what we considered to be useless civilian targets. Targets that we had likely defended, for we saw no use for them. Weaklings, the lot of them. We prided ourselves in our greatest trophies, the great battle stations and military hubs, the grand jewels that reaffirmed our strength. We allowed this, for the packs were full, and we knew that we would merely reclaim them on our next raid. That 
was our fourth mistake. An army cannot march on an empty stomach. A human proverb I learned, but one that I did not much appreciate at first. Our usual tactics were simple, pillage and leave. We raid the weak, cripple their ability to defend themselves, assert our dominance, and make sure they pay tribute when we return. We'd assume the human occupation of these alien worlds would suffer the same crippling blow on our next raid. Yet they didn't. We arrived with battle groups and left with scrap. And what we saw before was left was... impossible. What should have been cities raised and space stations left near uninhabited, left to subsistence barely eking out enough existence to resist, but enough to placate our coffers and food stores, were now bustling metropolises, even larger, even more prosperous than the ones we found in our first aids. The humans, they were acting as nurses rather than as overlords or conquerors. How truly pathetic one must be to nurse a dying creature to health. They truly were a shameful people, and yet... They still managed to push us back. How? Why? Our rage grew increasingly unsated, and so we struck again. This time, with the combined strengths of all the major packs. This was our fifth mistake. We entered just above soul space. This time with no demand sent and no warning shot given. This was no longer a mere battle, but war of annihilation and humiliation. Our fleets arrived, but upon seeing the heart of Sol, they saw nothing but emptiness and darkness. There was no star. Even though we could detect its presence in our gravimetric readings, there was no light. Yet our senses and systems were overwhelmed with the cowardly attacks of a trillion calculations per second. But then, as soon as we realized what was happening, we saw it, the light, and the light burned us all into asunder. There were no survivors that day, but a message remains that rattles even my battle-hardened soul. Decimus, wait, what? I thought you said that there was no sun. What is that light? It was at that point that the galaxy began to fracture. Our grip was loosening even as we clung to our possessions with an iron fist. Our tributaries were rebelling, and we could not stop them. Because for every world that announces their independence, humanity's banner would soon reach them with their uh, wretched velvet glove. During the chaos, we managed to capture one of the linoleum merchants, who had indeed taken on a pilgrimage to Seoul. This was what the snivelling weakling had to say. The humans, they, uh, they don't even know about your war. The average human lives with only the barest inklings as to what is happening beyond their sphere. They live lives in excess. They enjoy their culture, and our culture too. We, uh, we don't trade in resources as much as we do in our film. Our games, our art, and our culture, they demand nothing but reward us for merely prospering. You, uh, you're fools, if you believe that you can oppose them, because while your lowest of the low slaves away on your hell's ships and mines, humanity's lowest continues to better themselves in the arts, sciences, and commerce. While the war has consumed you, humanity's barely felt a disruption in the day-to-day. -day. Really. All you've done is made them mildly annoyed. 
The average human enjoys leisure, while the average Etelne dies in the trenches, bleeding and alone. The humans don't even have warriors. They've automated war, optimized it to a level none of you can match. Your insolence will be paid in blood, Linoleum. And I am more than willing to do so, because at least I know I avenged my ancestors by telling you the truth that you and the rest of your kin have been relegated to the dustbin of history. Raniam slew the insolent worm a few moments after this recording. I could not believe their words. I could not force myself to believe it was true. The weak cannot triumph over the strong. One could not automate war. It was not possible. But the consequences of our failures could not be ignored any longer. My people began to starve. For the first time in our two millennia of primacy, we became more desperate, larger rage to increasingly smaller gains. Throughout all of this, humanity did not chase us, nor did they engage in any aggressive attacks. They simply sat there, ignoring our advances, ignoring our engagements, ignoring everything. It was as if we were flinging ourselves against a wall, a wall that did not even acknowledge our existence. We realized that in order to break through, in order to reclaim our honor, we must push with all of our might, using every ounce of strength to crack Sol's defenses. They would not be able to ignore us any longer. And I had planned to lead the charge. Preparations were made, but we were met with setback after setback. Ships' drives began to fail. Entire stations could no longer sustain themselves. Our economy that relied on these raids could no longer provide for us. And infighting began in earnest. And that was our sixth mistake. But when the battles were over, there was nothing left. I had remained on our homeworld, managing the Emperor's final forces when the ceasefire was signed. The decades following were a slow decline into obscurity. For what was left of our people were now scattered amongst the stars or starving on our world. With the resources that remained, I had secured a meager fleet, used the last of our resources for a final push against our great enemy. But the ships never left their hangars. We'd run out of fuel. And we had no means of acquiring any more. Without which, we were stuck, unable to even reach for the stars, or even our own moon. We had run ourselves the ground. It is how, nearly a century since our great fall, and even in the fall I find no solace in a final great battle or the great defeat. Instead, we fell because we simply could not fight anymore. A great shame when our final moments were not born out of stronger foe, but because our inability to fuel our forsaken ships. And now... We look onto the stars, around campfires of our crumbling home, and wonder, what could we have done differently, and has our way of life truly been fall for nothing? I think about the Linoleans' words, had we not had even afflicted a nick on humanity's armor. And if that were the case, then what was all of this for? Our children dream of reclaiming our glory. They war with primitive firearms and some with swords now. This will be our seventh and final mistake. Humanity has a saying. Amateurs talk strategy. Professionals talk logistics. If that is truly the case, then we weren't even amateurs.
to begin with. End of story. I just quickly want to thank the Tier 5 patrons and channel members. Alithia Barkey, Ken Maxwell, Casper Arnholtz, Albard and Gaster, Arcadian, Lord Azrakal, and Joachim Bakker. Tales from Outer Space 1553. Greetings ladies and mantle gents and welcome to this latest edition of Tales, Tales from Outer, Outer space. space. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Story number one. Healing plus lightning equals wizard launcher. Written by In Babylon They Wept. Avalon was already halfway through the anti-lightning sigil when he realized that the Hedge Wizard spell was continuing. Surprising, dual elemental spells were rare enough amongst polished circle elves, where a backward self taught like the human in front of him. They were signs of a prodigy. Still, it was hardly worth noting for someone with centuries of experience. He simply relooped his hand instead of closing his fist preparing himself to charge his sigil with the second element in turn. Or, so he thought. His almost bored counterspelling was replaced by consternation. The first spell he'd identified clearly enough, Aerothurgy of the Third Ring, a lightning blast designed to cripple warriors by overdrawing their muscles. A typical for wizard jewels, but perhaps the hedge wizard was trying to avoid lethal options. He would be disappointed if he expected the same courtesy from Avalon himself. But the second spell he'd never seen used in a duel before. It was a biomancy spell, but far more intricate than the lightning spell. At least the sixth ring. He'd seen something like it used to reattach severed tendons. Why would he try to heal me right after harming me? The hedge wizard maintained focus as he traced the last symbols through the air. Completing the cast, Avalon closed his fist and finished his sigil, protecting from the lightning part of the attack. If there was a look of trepidation on the hedge wizard's face as he finished, Avalon assumed that it was fear from fighting a superior mage. He assumed wrong. There was a sound like a rigging of a ship tearing loose, like a mighty cord breaking under unimaginable strain. The hedge wizard howled in pain, but more important than that, he flew! Avalon had no time to cast a physical barrier. He'd been prepared for lightning and thunder, not for the filthy half-feral man to cross the thirty-foot gap between them in half a second. His brain was still trying to process how the healing plus lightning resulted in a wizard launcher. The wizard slammed into him with a waist level, a dagger, sharp shoulder aimed perfectly at his diaphragm. The sound he made as every fragment of the air left his body was similar to the noise a rat would make while getting run over by an ox cart. The two bounded down the road, the Gordian knot of limbs and robes. Avalon may have been caught unprepared for the dive tackle, but he wasn't completely useless in a scrap. His reflexes were still top-notch, and even when he couldn't tell up from down, he could still cast a ward against blows. The hedge wizard was definitely slower and smaller than Avalon himself was, but if nothing else, he was in his element. Avalon managed to throw a few sharp elbows into his ribs. But when the scramble stopped, the human was the one on top. The sigil was not focused enough to full stop the first blow. But it softened it. His head still bounced back against the grass. But it was hardly the crushing blow that the hermit had clearly hoped for. The second blow was also warded. 
but still went hard enough to draw a trickle of blood from one nostril. He tracked the recoil fist of the human wizard and was surprised to see a large rock clutched in his palm. He must have snatched it off the path at some point during the tumble. Sly, little bastard. He did have an ace of his own, a little trick built into every ward he cast. Wrapped it all in a defensive cast, he always threw in an energy trap, a way to turn the enemy's strength against him. Between the tumbling and the punches, the physical ward was practically shimmering with built-up charge. He released it with a snarl. The edge had no time to react. One second he was trying to pummel Avalon to death with a rock, the next he was physically thrown ten feet back. If he'd have landed on his back, Avalon would have had enough time to finish him off with his ice spear. But the stupid, grimy, wicked little beast landed on both feet and charged forward like a bull. Centuries of knowledge, analyzed in fractions of a second, spells, wards, sigils could be cast before the human crossed the gap. Only one choice. He swung a haymaker at the human's jaw. His mind worked faster than his arm could alter the course as he watched in slow motion horror as the human twisted his head and ducked, taking the blow on the forehead instead of the chin. Avalon's punch had more power than sense behind it, and decades of sedentary life had made him soft. He barely had time to wince at the boxer's fracture he gave himself before he felt the little man's arms wrap around him. Surprisingly, from behind, he must have managed to slide under his leg. As he reached down to break the vice-like grip the human had, he realized that the human's fingers were twitching the same lightning spell that they had before. He'd been too busy fighting for his life to process what the hell that opening move had been. But in a split second, he realized what was about to happen. The human didn't use lightning spells to attack directly. He used them on himself as a way to overload his muscles and gain a temporary and painful burst of super strength. The healing was just used to fix whatever horrible damage he did to his own muscles in that moment. Twitching stopped, and he knew that the convocation was complete. He could only sit in silent horror, as he felt every muscle in the human's body punched together in one powerful pulse. The arms around his waist crushed together like a vice, harm enough to snap at least two of his lower ribs. He felt his feet lift off the ground and his muscles in the human's back pulled taut, saw the ground rush up to meet him as he was flung carelessly over the human's shoulder. It wasn't a clean knockout. It was a filthy, vicious, visceral knockout. And in the human's eyes, that was far better. The hedge wizard spent a few seconds on the ground, quietly contemplating his choice to pull every muscle from his hamstrings to his shoulders. He didn't have enough mana to fix himself right as rain, but he could work up enough to at least get himself onto his feet again. He took a moment to drag the unconscious elf into the shade under a tree before rummaging around the finely tooled leather bag. There was a bag of candied nuts that had helped himself to, as well as a small bottle of brandy, but the rest he left be. He liked these creature comforts, but he wasn't a bandit. He just wanted to make a point about what happened to people that tried to barge through his woods, only to threat of violence when told to leave. He couldn't tolerate buddies, but he especially couldn't tolerate bullies blessed with magic. Still, he felt a little bad for his petty theft and slightly impressed with the physicality of the fight. He hemmed and hawed for a few seconds before fishing through his pack again, this time pulling out a quill and some parchment. Using one of the hardbacks in the bag as a desk, 
he wrote a small note to leave to the unconscious Alp's lap. I say, Maker, you can travel through, provided that you bury your shites. When you return to your very fancy circle, try to read a book on how to not get suplexed. <laughs> Signed, uh, Tombug. Yes, you're decent enough for a book wizard. I guess you can stop by again, if you behave. Bet your friends are pricks, though. Tell them to stay away, or I'll have to kill them with a rock. End of story. Story number two. Human imagination is precious. Written by Foxcorp. A lone radio dish peers into the cosmos, constantly screaming out, asking, begging to be found. For a century it has screamed into the void and countless possible habitable worlds. Yet, no one has yelled back. The humans who operate the machine sit in solace and isolation. They worry about things no other species could dream of. Think of new solutions to questions only they could ask. While they learn nothing of our existence, we are simply too nervous about changing them. For all those years, we have listened, seen, and found... What we see on that little blue marble is the most ingenious people of all space. They haven't, throughout their history, stopped asking questions of themselves. With ravenous hunger, they tear apart things around them, not to destroy, but to learn. Through this destruction, they find base materials and reshape their atoms into something entirely new. The desire to create, learn, and prosper is not seen so cleverly anywhere else in the universe. These things are not our highest guarded resources. Nay, it is the human's imagination that has led our empire to success. Through their stories, they have made versions of every single being in the galaxy. Hawks, elves, machine intelligence, hive minds, galaxy scale alien threats, deadly parasites, bacteria, and viruses. Through studying their all-encompassed culture, we have made defenses to every single threat imaginable only by them. When the Great Scourge arose, it was discovered that it was already present in human video games. We then found out what weapons were effective against it and prevailed. When one young species accidentally made a super-intelligent AI, the humans once again had a story with a viable solution. We used Grey Goo to destroy all systems containing the AI and all it could spread to, then deactivated the machines. Without humans, our best scientists predicted that we would have been exterminated by AI within 50 years of its creation. This is why we can't reveal ourselves to humans. We are bland, boring creatures, especially compared to the ones in their stories. We have no magic. Wormholes or hulking megastructures. Our technology hasn't made us some great power. We can't escape entropy. We can't launch some Hollywood invasion of any planet. But we are eternally grateful to the humans. For if they were not in existence, we most certainly wouldn't be either. Around their star cluster, we've enforced a total quarantine. Their minds must not be inhibited by our stale existence. In exchange for this... We protect them from the horrors they believe to be nothing more than the dreams of authors. One day, 
when they take to the stars, we will greet them with all we know. However, I'm certain that once such a day comes, we'll still have much more to learn from them than they do us. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1554. Humans and Mind Analyzers, written by Swift Out. There I was in a room. See? Dimension? Anyway, there was nothing but the purest white that I'd ever seen. I tried to walk, but I stood on nothing. I turned my head, but nothing changed. Not a single crack or shadow appeared. Was I still? Moving through the void. I clapped my hands together, but never heard the sound. I didn't really even feel my hands touch. I had been on some weird trips when I had to go into the mind of another sapient species. But nothing like this. Sometimes I would even get forced out of a particularly hostile species' mind. But to see an absence of, uh, everything. Ever been on a walk through, uh, whatever counts as a forest to your people? You always see paths going every which way through the plants and mushrooms. Small signs of use that guide you towards destinations. It's remarkably similar to when you visit a mine. In this place, nothing. There was no forest for the paths to exist in. Random thoughts that should be flying around were nowhere to be seen. The static memories that would usually make the forest were absent. All I was shown was the abyss white. I would have been terrified if not for the warmth I felt on every which way. It was almost relaxing to be in such tranquility. I heard something in the distance that woke me up from my thoughts. Well, here is the wrong word, I'd say. More like I felt a confused yell across the void. Not panic, just very, very confused. Like someone had just been woken up halfway through a sleep cycle with a slap to the face. I called out as loud as I could, and I actually heard my voice ring out across the white. Something, or the other, shifted in the void, and I felt that I was looking into someone's eyes. I didn't like how I felt, like the wherever I decided to turn and look at. I may have begun to go a wee a bit mad when I tried to spin around in order to get rid of the feeling. Luckily, after a few turns, I saw someone. I really thought something had gone wrong with the analyzer. I was staring straight into the eyes of the human I was supposed to be inside of, ignoring the wording. What in the six universes was happening? I thought uh, I'd never seen a mental image of this quality before. The circumstances left me truly and utterly unable to speak. Then she spoke. Doc, uh, where are we? You said that this was supposed to be like a dream mixed with a weird psychedelic trip, but goddamn, this is freaky. I should have answered her sooner, but I might have been even more confused than she was. I couldn't believe that this was happening. As a pure and utter professional, I, of course, felt absolutely nothing overwhelming about the situation. I paid no heed to the cataclysmic scientific discovery, for which I would likely receive every single prize and grant allotted the century. Yes. There was no part of me that wished to maniacally laugh for the next hour or two at the chances this would give me once I woke up from the sheen. Although I admit a good chuckle or fifteen have escaped, but I swear I refrain from any otherwise villainous hand movements. I was talking to another person inside their mind. 
Do you even understand just what that means? Something truly, utterly, horrifyingly, mind-breakingly alien. Just something that I could have never even imagined being reality. Oh, how much I revisit that memory just to live it all over again. How often I see it in my dreams. Just how many times I felt like I was back in the sea of white in my dreams. Well, I got off the tracks there. I, I need to slow down on this run. Have I ever told you just how glad I am for human alcohols? Right, the tracks need to get back on them. She started speaking after a moment of me cackling. She asked if everything was alright. I managed to hold on to enough my routine to reassure her that it was fine. Completely out of the ordinary and definitely not of my scope of expertise. Out of anyone's scope of expertise. But still fine. Neither of us was screaming in pain and we were still two completely different entities. So nothing major had gone wrong. Although just being in that mind made me feel all sorts of strange. It wasn't the wrong kind of strange, thankfully. It was just, uh, different, I guess. As alien as the creature I was hooked up to the analyzer with. I can't even imagine what a newbie would have gone through if that was their first encounter with an alien mind. I don't think I'm presumptuous in believing that they'd have gone mad when they first realized that they were in a white void. I'm thankful that it was me who had the first experience, and not just because of the fame and fortune it has brought me. I'd be amazed if anyone other than myself had been recognizable as an individual after what I went through. I only had to go through three therapy sessions before I was allowed in public again. After reassuring her that everything was fine, the void somehow changed. Not in color, but the warmth changed. It didn't get hotter or colder, but just different. It was completely calm now. She trusted me. I think, at least. I've been through enough minds to at least understand the differences between calm and agitated. This was calm, although still confused. A somewhat unprofessional thought came to my mind, and I followed. I poked her right in the forehead. Maybe with a bit, uh, quite a bit, uh, more force than I should have. She stumbled back, hands reaching to cover the area I had hit. Just for a few seconds, the white void became a mix of every color in the spectrum, like I had just disturbed a puddle of water. I really wanted to do it again. I decided to just watch the human in front of me, however. Then I noticed she was above me, and I was laying down. Or was I standing? There was no ground, so perspective was all that mattered in this place. Her perspective. From her viewpoint, I'd poked her and fallen down on my back. Headache-inducing, yes. I'm not sure if I got up or if she did, but we were standing from both of our perspectives now. These days, what happened inside that human's mind is thoroughly researched topic, repeated hundreds of times by now. But back then, feck, I didn't have the slightest proof. I just threw some theories at the wall to see if one broke through. Some of the ideas I raced through didn't even make any sense, but a few I began to give serious thought. In the end, I gave up, however, mostly due to being taken out of my thoughts by the human. I'd been silent for a long time, which worried her. She had grabbed one of my shoulders, which I jumped away from, seeing the hand was a few feet longer than it should have been. My dismay caused her to notice it and scream, which caused her arm to unelongate back to normal ratios. She was becoming a little frantic, 
I had to get her to calm down. Yelling, calm down, wasn't working, so I tried to shake her a little. That did the job somewhat after I confirmed to her that her hands were fine. Human, and thus weird, but fine. So, Doc, you said nothing was wrong, but fact, this feels so wrong. She said with the same opinion as I. Weirdness all around us. Yes, uh, everything is fine, like I said, uh, but I'd be lying if I told you that this was, in any sense, the word normal. So, uh, what now, Doc? Try doing the arm stretching again. Maybe try imagining a target for you to grab. Okay, Doc, um, sure, I, I guess. She threw her arm into the void. It went beyond what I could see clearly. I could see the arm coming back, fast. Ignoring the third law in her hand, it simply stopped where it was supposed to. She had a small ball inside her grip. We both stared at it. She threw it upwards and caught it again. She threw it to me. I fumbled and dropped it. The ball fell downwards before disappearing out of sight. The human's face twisted into a horrid grimace, eyes looking straight down mine. I think humans can do that face in the real world, but uh, I hope to fact not. Terrifying to see such conviction inside such a clearly demented smile. Imagine telling someone that they had the powers of an almighty god and believing you. And it is also being true. Objects began appearing from the void. Some coalesced from millions of particles. Some simply became more and more opaque as time went on. Then a few even sprung from geometric patterns. It was like a demo version of a new virtual reality game. Crap. Just happened out of nowhere. Maniacal laughter would have suited the situation, but instead I only saw that same smile, silently spreading in circles. Although her eyes shined with more excitement than crazy, it took a while, and not without a few mistakes, but we were now in a clearly defined room, with walls and a floor. She fell down a few feet from where she was floating on the newly created sofa. I walked around and saw that she was exhausted, breathing as much as her lungs could move air. A few coughs also came from her. I figured her mind must have been projecting mental exhaustion as a physical image onto the form in front. Something like that at least. Uh, that or she was having a heart attack in the real world. I sat down on the other side of the sofa. I watched as she slowly regained some composure, even if her breathing never calmed down. Feels like I've been running for the last hour. Well, you did just somehow create a room with furnishings out of dust. Hmm. I could get used to this, just thinking about something and it happening. She relaxed more on the sofa, seemingly sinking into it. Then she was actually sinking into it. Then through it. She wasn't making sounds anymore. Her completely limp form fell through the floor. She created, shattering like glass. I looked downwards from the hole and saw her accelerating towards the void. The cracks on the floor began spreading quickly. The room crumbled and disappeared back into nothing. The floor became dust underneath me and I began falling towards the human. She was falling faster, though, and every moment that passed only brought us further apart. The white void began cracking and swirling into different shapes and colors. I think I was pink for a few seconds. The colors became tastes and my limbs became what you can only describe as a mix between triangle and purple. It was time to get out of the human's mind before I became a vegetable, literally and figuratively. I slowly opened my eyes, making sure I wasn't a collection of tiny eyes or something like that. 
but everything seemed normal. I sighed as I looked over towards where the human was sitting. Her eyes were still closed. I tapped her shoulders, but that did nothing. One small glance towards the observation window, and the doctors were already running inside the room. Luckily, she appeared fine. Her heart was pumping, and her lungs were taking air in and out, although slowly. The machine that she was still hooked up to showed brainwaves, although dim ones. One of the doctors was the first to point out that she was asleep, deeply asleep. They tried to wake her up, but to no avail. They resigned it to carry her to her quarters, with a nurse to keep watch on her medicals. So, what actually happened inside of her mind? You haven't seen a thousand stories published about it over the year. You live inside a fecking lead basement, yeah? All right, I'll explain. The humans have two almost entirely different consciousnesses, yeah? Weird, I know. I was there. They can stop focusing on something, but something still in them keeps the tabs on it. That's why they can catch things that fall from surfaces. They don't need to be 100% cognizant of things. Things like a heartbeat are controlled by the subconscious, and things like speaking are controlled by the consciousness. Yes, same with us. I know. But let me fecking finish. With humans, the line is simply more defined. So the analyzer only got into the conscious part. For her, that void was the true as reality, because it was reality to her mind. But it was her reality, so she had more of a say in it than an actual reality. Things were fine when there was just the void, but when she started adding objects, her mind had to keep 100% attention on everything, even things behind her. She couldn't handle the strain, and so she just stopped being conscious. The colors and shapes I saw before exiting was the subconscious flooding into the available space. It was confirmed in the following tests, this time performed on already sleeping humans. But yeah, weirdest day in the office I ever had. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1555 Story number one. Death Wilder Pain Resistance Written by Random3x Thomas walked into the med unit of the ship he had recently joined. They wanted to do a general evaluation, basically a routine checkup. Thomas readied a small folder in his bag for when the inevitable happened. Ah, Thomas, please have a seat, Pliskin, a large lion-looking humanoid said, gesturing to a seat in his examination room. I'll just change the settings to human and uh, we can begin, he said, baring his teeth in what Thomas assumed was approximation of a human smile. Sure thing, uh, I've got a file with my medical history explained, Thomas explained as he reached into his bag to retrieve the bundle of documents, only to stop when Pliskin held up a claw to stop him. That won't be necessary. The scanner can identify issues even your primitive race can't identify, Pliskin said with another attempt at a smile. Thomas just held his tongue. It was still a prevalent opinion held amongst the Alliance members that humans weren't worth the oxygen scrubbers used. Okay... Hold still uh, and don't panic. They're just shiny lights, Pliskin said. It was the tone doctors reserved for infants. Thomas resisted the urge to rebuff his insulting attitude. The machine shot out several visible lights as it began to sweep over his body, obviously scanning him. This was something Thomas struggled to understand. It seemed more like a movie to make the beams visible with various tools. The tools human doctors used could do that without needing to be showy. He half suspected that that was why they used this. Make a big song and dance about the primitive races. 
Okay, the scan is complete, Pliskin said, as the display he was holding pinged and he began to whir with the results. So healthy as a horse, eh, Doc? Thomas said, repressing a smile, knowing half of what must be showing. Most amusing at this moment was the big lion man somehow was going deathly pale. So, so many diseases, he muttered, as he thought he stealthily moved out of Thomas's reach. Knew it. I'm the healthiest one here, Thomas grinned, standing and approaching the now scrambling lion man. S stay back, Bliskin near squealed in terror. Okay, so tell me, Doc, uh, what your scanner say? Thomas asked, focusing his gaze on the now-cornered doctor. You, you have countless viruses and, and diseases. If I didn't know your race was so primitive, I'd suggest that you were a biological weapon, Bliskin said, looking back at Thomas. Oh, which ones? Thomas asked curiously. Bliskin only flicked his display onto the larger screen, reading through it. Thomas couldn't see where the fear-inducing ones were. I only see the usual stuff and the remnants of vaccines, Thomas said, giving the list a read. Usual stuff, Preskin repeated in a higher octave. Yeah, chickenpox, common cold, a tetanus shot here, and the usual childhood vaccines, Thomas explained, pointing to each corresponding disease. These are common illnesses, Preskin said in growing shock. Yes, uh, back where I'm from, there are a lot of worse ones. Thomas said with a shrug as he reached to retrieve his medical history bundle. Okay, what about these genetic anomalies? Biskin asked as he flicked the new list onto the screen, pausing at his retrieval. Thomas walked up to the display. Hmm, one moment, Thomas said as he took out his glasses and put them on to read the smaller script clearer. Well, uh, this one is a uh, bad eyesight. Uh, got that from my mum's side of the family, he said, pointing to one item. Ah! That one isn't fun, he said, pointing at another. What, what, what does it do? Peskin asked in what was quickly becoming a morbid fascination. These mean agony most of the day, Thomas said with a shrug. Agony? Peskin repeated, confused. Lots of pain. But you know, uh, meh. Thomas finished with a shrug. You have a medical condition that leaves you in constant pain and you seem apathetic. Briskin asked, trying to get some handle on the anomaly his years of medical experience could not prepare him for. A genetic condition, not much can be done about it, but endure it, Thomas replied with another shrug as he continued reading the list. Briskin, though, had a look about him that suggested he suspected the human to be exaggerating. After all, humans were from a backwater primitive world. Holding out a headband, he offered it to Thomas. This is a sensory unifier band. It'll allow me to experience your issues myself. It'll allow me to identify specific ailments, Pluskin said as he near threw the band at Thomas, not wanting to get near him still. Huh. Hmm, okay, sure, Thomas agreed, putting it on his head. Pluskin placed his own band on his head so he could experience the sensation of Thomas. Thomas watched this fall unfold and began to panic as he shouted for the nurse to help. The moment he activated the device, Biskin started screaming before his eyes rolled to the back of his head. He collapsed, unconscious. After a few moments, the hasty use of smelling salts, Biskin awoke and looked even more terrified. You injure that much! That could kill any other race! Biskin roared, where very much resembling the corresponding earthly species. Well, um, you get used to it, Thomas shrugged, not really understanding the issue. A few aches and pains and having an early onset of arthritis wasn't fun, but it wasn't much to cry about. Doctor, did you not read the pamphlet for humans? A rather frustrated nurse asked. 
Biscuit just mumbled something before meeting the baleful glare of the nurse. I uh, skimmed over it, he finally admitted. They are primitive, so it couldn't be that relevant. He added defensively. Sir, humans are from a class 4 death world, the nurse explained. Thomas, watching this, had learned something new and very metal. He would have to spread word on his death metal band comms boards. But th that means he could outsurvive everyone on the ship, Ruskin screeched, pointing at Thomas, who seemed mystified. This is the case, sir. He was just told to give you his medical records and get your rubber stamper. Did you not read the memo? The nurse asked pointedly at Pliskin. To drive the final nail in, Thomas took out a bundle of documents that he'd been asked to provide and gave a toothy grin of his own. End of story. Story number two. Human FTL is insane, written by Foxcorp. Most sensible, sapient species progressed upon a well-beaten path of development. Outliers either went a little faster or a little slower, changing up some of the general steps. One constant, however, was the method of FTL travel. Each successful sapient spacefarer utilized the tried-and-true wormhole drive. Everyone had varying levels of safety, but overall, it had a 75% success rate. Not excellent, not terrible. The most skillful species had a success rate of up to 99%. Humanity has a success rate of 100%, but they achieved it in a way so reckless and downright insane that the entire galaxy has still refused to adopt it. They call it the true vacuum utilization. -er. Well, the name doesn't sound like much, yeah. It really is something to behold. The process takes many years, sometimes centuries, to properly perform, but once established, it works perfectly. The process is as follows. Step 1. Lay down a path with slower-than-light construction drones. This step prevents the complete annihilation of the surrounding universe, making it the most important regarding safety. Step 2. Implement thermodynamics defying shield capacitors, pretty much the same as Step 1. Makes sense to the humans. Step 3. Create a Dyson Sphere, or generate similar power output. Penrose Sphere, or a Kugelblitz. The concept of a Kugelblitz is unknown to the galactic community. Humans have yet to properly explain its function. Apparently, they make a black hole by using a lot of concentrated light. The idea doesn't make much sense, but uh, humans are adamant about their existence. Step 4. Power the thermodynamics-defying shield capacitors with an insane energy device. Step 5. Unleash synthesized strange matter into the cucurbits within the shield. This triggers what other humans call a false vacuum decay. As with much human theory, we have no idea what they're attempting to explain. How does a vacuum turn into not a vacuum that breaks physics somehow? Step 6. Use the thermodynamics-defying properties of the no-longer-false vacuum to power the thermodynamics-defying shield capacitors. Somehow, this also generates excess energy that can be used elsewhere. It's a thermodynamics-defying, after all. Step 7. Encase ships with the false vacuum bubbles within the true vacuum and move as quickly as you want. This is the FDL step. There is no speed limit within a true vacuum, no sensible physical concepts of space and time either making it possible to move infinite distance over an infinitely small amount of time. Physics no longer applies 
Humans don't even know the reason for this. Step 8. Profit. Literally, you can now create infinite energy out of nothing, as well as travel faster than light. Now that humans have contacted the rest of the galactic community, they've attained some of the standardized FTL drives. Now, instead of relying on slower-than-light drones to set up their FTL highways, they use FTL drones. The construction of human space highways has only sped up as a result, worrying everyone but the humans. They don't seem to think the risks outweigh the rewards. Now, humans consistently pester the galaxy, asking us for permission to build highways through our own sovereign territories. They tell us how safe their technologies are as a reassurance. But in the very next sentence, they tell us of the dangers. In the infamous words of the human scientist, Robert Finkov, Our FDL allows for instantaneous and safe travel across the stars. Please note, however, that in the unlikely event of failure, the entire unshielded universe will be deleted from existence by an invisible force moving at the speed of light. Needless to say, no one has taken them up on their offer as of yet. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1556. Story number one. Survive, little ones. Survive. Written by Erebos Yeet. It was hard not to show his emotions while he was watching the city burn. There, standing on a hill that had been his home for many centuries, he towered over the other homes that he'd helped to build. Soon, there'd be nothing left but ash. Yet, not wanting to look a second longer, he smiled towards the small creatures hidden beneath his gigantic wings. They were his descendants, many generations removed, left in his care while their parents fought in the defense of their planet. The hatchlings looked up at him, full of dormant fear and curiosity. Will we win, Gratka? asked the biggest amongst them. He was old enough to doubt their invincibility. The younger kids still believed their parents had always won, as kids tend to do. Of course, yes, little one. I've asked all of my many friends for help. They will be here any second, he lied. It had been so long since he had last spoken to his former allies. In his long life, he had many, but little creatures aged as gracefully as he had. They lived and died in what to him seemed only a short moment, like a falling star greeting him before quickly burning out, leaving him with nothing but darkness. So who would help? The dead cannot protect his flock from death. They can only welcome us to join the endless nothingness. He was crudely awakened out of his deep thought by a high-pitched howls of the Zlakta at the bottom of the hill. Their renowned sense of smell had brought them here, and while most passed the hill looking for meatier prey than the old reptile and a few hatchlings, he started scaling the rocks. He breathed deeply. He mustn't worry the hatchlings. Let them feel safe till the very end. The six claws of the monsters were able to climb quickly, and the old Venai knew that he would not be able to stop them. His bones were old and rotting, his mind slow and filled with millions of useless memories. The beasts sprinted through the steep fields and were now mere wingspans away. He closed his wings around the hatchlings and averted his eyes. He repeated the mantra he repeated so many times. Survive, my little ones, survive. 
Even if only a moment longer. His sentence ended with a thunderous applause of explosions through the sky. Through the air, two creatures flew towards Lacta, guns blazing, their wings, no, not their wings, suits, pushed them right to the front of the Vanai Elder. The guns, which seemed antique, firing volley after volley against the first creature. He took many hits, but then he opened his mouth. The bullet blew right in and scattered his yellow insides against the rocks and grass. The second creature had gotten closer and leapt at the first biped, seemingly knowing that he was no match for the Zlatter. He took an explosive and waited for the beast to land. While it ripped out his windpipe, the biped triggered it, killing them both. Then the third creature arrived, just as fast as two others. The biped that was left threw aside his blaster and grabbed what had to be a sword. The metal reflected the yellow evening sun and painted the spark of hope in the burning landscape. He ran towards the last disaster and seemingly willingly let himself be massacred by his enormous claws. Holding the biped in front of him, with his four front grabbers, the creature stood up and howled in victory. This was the moment the biped waited for, and with all of his remaining power, he thrust the blade into its soft underbelly. The monster roared, but was dead before he truly grasped what had happened. Only now, as the biped stood before him, shaking on his knees, could the Vanai clearly see him. He recognized the species. He remembered them very well. Long ago, a lifetime for me, eleven generations for them, their planet had become unlivable due to the ferocious geological activity. Clouds of ash had destroyed their crops, and it was clear that humanity, as they called themselves, would not survive. They had sent all the distress signals they possibly could into open space, hoping that they weren't alone. I was the only one who heard the cries. Even in interstellar space, they were located in a very distant and isolated galaxy. Back then, I was a wealthy man. To save their species would mean the end of my wealth. It would cost too much. Nonetheless, the Benai are an honorable bunch. I called for every favor I could. I gave all my possessions away just to build the biggest ships this side of the galaxy had ever seen. But I was sure that it was possible to go and rescue them. I responded to their cry of help with a short transmission. Do not despair. I have heard your message, and I will come to your aid. I am far away, but do not doubt that I will come. Survive, little ones. Survive, even if only for a moment longer. It took a human generation for the ships to get to their planet. When I set off, I was informed that there was a modest amount of them, about 14 billion. By the time I arrived, only 300 million remained. I was able to save about 126 million of them, for the majority rather died on their planet then trust an alien creature. Once they arrived on the home planet, it became apparent my planet would not sustain them, so they became a scattered species all across the universe. They became warriors, traders, scientists, and laborers for different civilizations, never entirely united again. But before they left, their leader had come to me and proclaimed, We are indebted to you, dear rescuer, 
When your cries light the night sky, we will unite once again and do what you did for us. Expected it a pleasantry. Humans died too fast. They would never remember me once time had come. But there one stood before me, on the edge of death. I spread my gigantic wings covered in scales and bowed my head. I remembered it as a sign of great respect amongst the humans. Then I spoke. Thank you, dear human. You saved my life and the life of my hatchlings. Your bravery will be remembered. And the debt of your species has been repaid. The human fell on his knees. He was departing from this plane. I shielded the eyes of the hatchlings who tried to come closer. He looked up at me and said, No, not yet. Blood dripping out of his mouth as he raised his arms, as to convey a message. I could read, beneath the blood and dirt, black words that seemed permanently inked into his skin. It read, Survive, little ones! Survive! And... As a human fell to the ground, hundreds, no, thousands of ships arrived in the evening sky. The sheer mass of their loyalty seemed to block out the sun. Out of every ship, hundreds upon hundreds of little dots dropped out of the surface, ready to fight, ready to die, destined to win. They had to come. They had remembered. The ships were a cacophony of different designs and sizes from all across the universe. The humans were united for the first time since the death of their planet. All for their promise. Perhaps all just for me. My scales started dancing with hope. The hatchlings cheered. The oldest one looked up at me, proud and shouted, I knew that you could do it, Gratka. The only answer I could muster was reassuring. We'll survive, little ones. We will survive. End of story. Story number two. We all bypassed fusion. The humans didn't. Written by ArcticYT99. Energy is equal to mass multiplied by speed of causality squared. It is understood by the galactic community that fusion is a pipe dream. The chance of fusion depends on the chance of collision of atoms. The cross-section becomes very important. With atoms being so tiny, one needs to heat up the particles massively or increase the pressure substantially. As it turns out, it takes more energy to reach those thresholds than you would gain from the reaction. The closest we ever got to fusion energy was through the fission-boosted fusion detonation of thermokinetic chambers. Imagine detonating TNT in an upside-down bowl and converting the blast and heat directly into electricity, then you should have an understanding of how it worked. Most species took to antimatter reactions, finding it far easier to harvest antimatter produced by their local star, or creating antimatter in orbital antimatter factories. Some species stayed with good old fission technology. The humans didn't. They discovered spatial distortion technology and used it to travel interplanetary distance in a reasonable time, much like the rest of us. What they did with it, beyond travel, surprised us. Remember when I said that fusion is based on the cross-section area of an atom? Well, it turns out that you can distort space in such a way as to create a bubble whose dimensions are equal to that of one atom. 
You can even do so with the input of energy using specialized designs that take advantage of the Casimir effect. You need only put in enough energy to surpass the Coulomb barrier. It's insane. It's simple. It's, uh, it's been staring us right in the face the whole time. Sure, it doesn't have the energy output of antimatter, but you can collect large amounts of hydrogen anywhere that has water or even directly from a star. It allows us to explore far further into the unknown regions than we ever would before. The humans, uh, they've started a galactic renaissance. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1557. Story number one. Enrichment written by Marilyn of Many. Before you asked, said the medical officer to the captain, yes, I've made progress with the enrichment activities for the crew. Good, said Captain Zuz, flicking her antennae with approval. She stepped the rest of the way into the medical bay, allowing the door to shut behind her thorax. I never doubted your skills. Uh, this, uh, just my speed, hmm? Dr. E. E. angled his body low, in mock humility. Then rose with a laugh when his old friend waved a pincher in dismissal. I jest, uh, th this was uh, a challenge, but I think that we've got a handle on things for the near future, assuming the wormhole repairs aren't delayed further. There shouldn't be, uh, what have you prepared? Well, bearing in mind that the crew members all have their own methods of keeping themselves entertained, I set out to seek activities that they wouldn't seek out on their own. The doctors and Tanai danced as he talked. The Frillians and the strong arms on board right now are all artistically inclined to some degree, so I gave them permission to paint the cargo bay. Really? The captain held her antenna still. Go on. They'll be making an underwater scene, a joint effort, combining elements of their respective homeworlds. I understand that they're already having a fine time planning how to fit things together. Tentacles and frills, Captain Zuz cocked her head. I'll be curious to see how that turns out. I as well, the doctor agreed. As for the smashers, I've got them set up with a variety of space machine parts and dared them to make music with them. Have I? Yes, well, it was really only the way. We've cleared the storage room that's reasonably sound shielded and set time parameters. They're actually very excited to attempt sounds from other cultures, and it probably won't be all be drumming. Good enough, uh, What about the humans? Yes, uh, the humans. Dr. E tapped his pinches together and thought. Uh, I'll set are an active bunch. Uh, one of them actually had an idea for me, and I think that it'll serve them well. A bit rowdy, maybe, but... Uh, as if on cue, footsteps and whooping sounded from the hall. Captain Zuz turned just in time to see something whiz past on the floor, followed by three loud humans running at top speed. The captain waited for a quiet before speaking. Was that a cleaning robot? Uh, yes, Captain. And, um, what was on top of it? Uh, beef jerky, Captain. The winner gets to eat it, I, I see. Zuz turned both eyes back to regard her friend. Is this an established sport in human culture? Um, no, but I understand it appeals to their evolutionary history and hunter instincts, sir. There was a talk of doing a stealth round next. Uh, if our ship was larger, they would likely set one of the cleaners on minimal battery and track it across the ship, waiting for it to uh, get tired. I uh, see. Zuz gazed out into the hall. Well, uh, they are clearly enriched, uh, 
I'll give you that. I made sure they program it to stick to the hallways and communal rooms, he said. And out of anywhere particularly breakable. Good, good, uh, well... The captain settled his shoulders and lifted a foreleg towards the doorway. A little rackus for a good cause never hurt anyone. Uh, fine work. I'll leave you to finish your shift. Oh, uh, I've already finished, the doctor said. And you've forgotten the species. I've, uh... Right. She set her foreleg back down, regarding her friend with suspicion. What do you have in mind? E.E. E. spread his mandibles in the mesmer version of a grin. Can't have the captain going without enrichment. What is that smile for? E.E. E. pointed in the direction the humans had gone. Did you see the red cloths tucked into their waistbands? Yes. Why? Doesn't it remind you of a fleeing far squeak back home? Captain Zuz broke into laughter. You, you didn't. Dr. E.E. E. grinned wider. Of course I did. The humans don't mind at all. This additional enrichment for them. They've been both predator and prey in their own evolution. And a lot of their games reflect that. They've even promised to try not to kick you in the head in startlement when you lunge out of the shadows. Zuz chuckled darkly. They think they'll actually see me. They do, he said. It's cute, so uh, care to see if you can get all the first quick cloths before I do. He toned down the lights to end of shift dimness and gestured towards the door. We both know you're faster, but I know where they'll be. You're on, the captain smiled at a friend and then dashed into the hallway on silent feet. The doctor was right after her. He went in the other direction, laughing the quiet laughter of being whose existence is successfully enriched. End of story. Story number two. The Human Arsenal, written by Adoic. This was the fourth first contact meeting with the humans. They always followed every single protocol the Council had established for every new species entering the galactic stage, where they constantly failed the military power inspection section. Some of the media outlets stated that it was because the humans just weren't strong enough to stand on their own. As an independent species, I needed a guardian one. Others reported that it was because they were too strong, that they were being identified as a galactic crisis. They were both wrong, but someone right. Humans needed guidance in a lot of things, usually in diplomacy, and getting their translators working correctly. The issue the Council was having with the MPI was the fact that the humans refused to inform them what the weapons they had. At first, they claimed that they only had magnetic rail-based weaponry, then it was discovered in a small civilian trading ship that they also had sophisticated energy weapons, much better for smaller ships than carrying ammunition. The second MPI, five galactic years later, the humans insisted that railguns and laser weaponry were all they had. But another small civilian ship, an exploration craft, was discovered to be carrying highly developed guided missile technology. After a trade agreement, we discovered that they were so accurate, one could be guided through a gap in a Carolina energy shield that opened when the Carolina was firing its plasma weaponry. The third MPI, another five years later, the humans acknowledged that they had conventional missiles, railguns, and laser weaponry. But when the Council had finally been given access to the small Warcraft, an engineer noticed its power source was a form of nuclear fission. The military staff recognized that that meant that humans likely had nuclear weaponry as well. 
The fourth MPI, another five years later, the humans made their last statement that they had highly guidable nuclear missiles, railguns, which could fire nuclear-based shells and laser weaponry. Believing species like humans couldn't possibly have more, they were accepted into the galactic stage as independents. Then the first war for them came. They were attacked by the IOA, slavers and despots who barely missed being classed as a crisis. They were one of the strongest species in the galaxy. But humans pushed them back. That's when we learned the humans had many, many more weapons and uh, more terrifying ones. They unleashed a chemical weapon, one derived from what they called the sarin gas. It annihilated an entire AOE invasion force in moments. So the IOE issued a chemical weapon countering masks. The humans sent out a message that the IOE needed to surrender or there would be no return. Of course, the IOE refused. That's when, based on our records, the humans sent out a suicide force to the IOE homeworld. There, the humans unleashed a biological weapon. One developed specifically to kill the IOE. We later discovered that the humans developed this weapon in a mere three galactic years after meeting the IOE. 3.9 billion IOE died on their homeworld. The ones who fled brought this weapon unknowingly to other colonies. Within ten galactic years, the IOE were classified as an endangered intelligent species. Within fifteen, the numbers were down to the thousands. When the Council began discussing reparations, a forced peace treaty, and the possibility of humans having to go through the steps to aid the IOE in recovery, there was a data leak. The leak let us know that the humans had weapons of such nature for every single species. They had only been in the galactic stage for 20 years, not even half, barely even a quarter of a human lifespan. What we didn't know at the time was that it was, was all misunderstood. The humans in the first MPI did only have railgun technology. By the time the second MPI came around, they had mastered the technology of balancing energy outputs to make combat-capable laser weapons to mount on their craft. By the time the third MPI occurred, they were able to make long-range, agile, and accurate missiles based off atmospheric designs. Finally, the fourth MPI occurred, and the humans had figured out a perfectly balanced missile loaded with nuclear warheads capable of taking out an entire ship in a single shot. Then, they mounted it to an unguided package for their railguns. They had been developing military technologies for their entire existence, and were constantly adapting their arsenals. Even the IOE had been using the same ballistic-based rifle for 300 years. The Colina shielding technology hadn't been updated in 400 years. Other species were being outshined by these humans in weapons technologies. And uh, that's not even covering what happened when they discovered DNA splicing and engineering. Next article. Humans creating animal-human hybrids. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1558. Story number one. Humans are written by Bounty Hunter Master. Humans are strange. We found the humans on evacuation mission from the Vox Taxi and Scourge, whom has claimed many of our systems already. They live on a single temperate terrestrial planet, orbiting a yellow dwarf. We took pity on them and delivered them several light engines in hopes that they could build ships and escape. They were quite weird upon first contact, wherein some wanted to worship us as gods, 
A few didn't care much for our presence. A couple wanted to dissect us. There were even those who wanted to, uh, copulate with us. Needless to say, we explained about the Votaxians and got out of there as fast as possible. We can only hope that they understood the message and made it out in time. Humans are, uh, competent. When we next saw the humans, they had built several void arcs. By the looks of them, it wasn't enough to save them all, and by the damage they had, only escaped by the skin of their teeth. We all felt their pain, though. Their faces that day as they thanked us for the engines and warning. The humans resettled on another temperate terrestrial planet, away from the front lines, refusing offerings of shelter, claiming to want a new place to call home. Their resettlement went well, and they were back to where they were when we found them. However, by then, it was too late. A fire had been lit. Humans are stupid and spiteful. We had mostly left the humans alone, and they had colonized several planets now. We found them next on the front lines, several small groups of them. Out of sense and out of duty, pity and pride, we tried to keep them safe. But they were slaughtered like cattle. More of them showed up only to show the same result. They killed Vertaxian this time, however. We shipped the corpses back to them and showed the solidarity and respect. They tore it apart and asked for more. We had never seen such hatred before and agreed, provided they let us do the fighting from now on. We couldn't let them get eradicated like this so many more before. Humans are scary. Every time we delivered a corpse, they thanked us and did all manner of things to it, as though they were alive, like it was some kind of repentance ritual. We never thought that they'd break our pact and join the front again, but this time it was the Vertaxians who suffered. The humans were not being idle, as we thought. They'd made weapons. They called them atomic rifles. Uranium-powered projectile weapons capable of punching through any kinetic barrier and actually harming the incorporeal body parts of the Vataxians that were such hassles. Until now, defending ourselves is a matter of knowing where to aim, luck, and plasma turrets. However, this wasn't what scared us most. It was their reinforcements, a massive fleet of ships led by their void arcs. It was hard to tell, but they had been refitted for combat. In a matter of hours, the Vataxian ships were in various forms of dysfunction, debris fields, or piles of scrap. Humans are ferocious monsters. We had not yet witnessed the true blaze that had come at that earlier fire, that came over the next few years when we pushed back the Vortaxians and recovered the cradle world of the humans, but clean the life it once held. The humans were inconsolable for days, the memories of what the world once was played over and over on their vid screens. Days turned into weeks, and the morning continued. Then a Votaxian fleet entered the system. We had never seen the humans so angry before. The fleet was a debris field in a matter of minutes. Over the next few months of entering another brutal combat, right after the last one ended, we reached the breach. The humans descended on the breach like a beast at prey and passed through it where none could follow. Upon returning, they sent us a message saying, They will never return here again. Along with several videos of unfamiliar planets being torn apart to the cause from explosions. We had never seen an entire planet be reduced to a floating rubble, let alone several. We did not show these videos to our people. Humans are strange. 
The humans had returned to their systems after ending the war. We were not surprised when they contacted us. We were surprised when they invited us to their capital world, and surprised still when they thanked us for our part in the war despite us not even doing that much. We did not see that blazing fire of hatred anymore. It had been replaced with the electric happiness. The humans held celebrations for days. There were humans who wanted to drink liquids with us, humans who wanted to eat, humans who still wanted to copulate with us. They honored us as war heroes for rejecting them for so long. We hope that this will lead to a prosperous relationship with the humans. We already know what happens to those across them. End of story. Story number two. An old debt written by Mercury the dealer. Alexandra marched through the halls of his ship with ease as men and women split to give him space like a sea splitting before Moses. Much of the crew was beyond his control, but even the most disrespectful of subordinates did not dare stop a captain on his own ship. After a few minutes of walking, he finally reached the bridge where the mutiny was taking place. The captain did not slow down or change his trajectory in the slightest. Even as his crew shouted and cried insults aimed at him, humanity, and the grey goo which they had been commanded to attack. The man ordered the ship to raise the floor around him, and soon he stood above the mass of men and women. He gave a silent command, and soon his face and voice boomed through the entire ship, in speakers and screens. What I am about to say is not meant to stop you from returning home. As far as I am concerned, you may do whatever you wish. But I wish to tell you about what humanity has done, and how it has shaped you all. The crowd gazed upon him harder. I will start, as is right. With my people, the Dessus. When humankind found us, we were dying, choking, as our atmosphere of our planet thickened with pollution. We bled in senseless wars, as the tyrants that ruled over us competed over scraps. When the humans entered our planet, they came not as conquerors, but as liberators. They gave us food and water. They cleaned out our air and taught us concepts which we now take for granted. Liberty. Democracy. Kidship. Humanity saved our home and we, grateful and subservient, offered all we had in return for these gifts. We asked, no, begged to become a part of their nation. Their response? No. Their reasoning to annex the species immediately after saving it would be preying on the weak. A quiet whisper could be heard amongst the crew. Humanity expanded and discovered other planet-bound species, which, with the exception of the Delari, who had turned their planet uninhabitable, were all given aid, but not annexed. Instead, their borders were closed so that the human companies could not flood the markets. Then they declared all systems within ten hyperjumps of the inhabited planet to be the property of the species of that planet. Many of you, from the Dessus to the Gull Lashes, owe your lives to humanity's aid. Aid not fueled by imperialism, but by the simple wish to help others. A low murmur started. Two centuries after humankind saved my people, they found the Imperium and, like many of you, were disgusted by its ideas. The humans could have stood silently as they watched other species being enslaved and experimented on, they could have simply turned elsewhere for expansion and let us, the uplifted, deal with protecting ourselves. 
doing any of these options would have already made them beacons of justice when compared to most other nations in the galaxy. But did they do this? No. Humanity declared war on the Imperium. They broke the chains that bound your ancestors at the cost of their own blood and instigated a revolution which created the base for our nations. From the Orata, who decapitated their prince while chanting the French anthem, to the Mercegans who stormed the Imperial capital screaming, Viva la Revolution! Almost all of you owe humanity for the fact that you can sleep easy, knowing that you are an equal to every other species. The murmuring grew. Desima Prime, Karak, Dainli, Mesopotamia, Orisha One, all homeworlds which humanity left to their rightful owners without asking for a single credit in return. Their only request being that of the democracy to the newly liberated people. They did not ask for you to become servants, or even allies. Humanity fought, died, and killed in the name of your liberty. Do you wish to show how many of your people died for others? Then show! I will show how many of them died to liberate you! A number which I am certain outdoes yours by a factor of ten. And now they have asked you for help. Humankind faces an enemy which does not rest or stop. An enemy which, as I speak, approaches terror with the intent of destroying it. They ask us to stand with them as they fight this monstrosity so that they may evacuate. Like how they fought when we needed to evacuate our worlds under the threat of the Empire. Shouting could be heard throughout the ship. But it seems that you all wish to go with the civilian ships. Then go! The shout of the captain silenced the entire ship. Go back to your families and friends and tell them that when humankind, guardians of the Borneans, Garlash, Kermsomians, Desses, Delari, and all other uplifted, the people that shielded you from the Red Swarm, the Romers, and the Nanophage, destroyers of the Imperium of Kazi, the liberators of all its enslaved species, founders of the Galactic Peace Council, and the biggest investors in foreign aid in known history. You go and you tell them that when humanity called, you abandoned them under the protection of a single captain, and with a small fleet they could muster, because you were too scared to stand and fight. Perhaps this report of yours will seem glorious in the eyes of your loved ones, and worthy in the eyes of your ancestors. Be gone! The crew exploded in shots and chants. Men rushed back to their stations, and soon the bridge was in full operation, as people desperately tried to make up for lost time. The captain hid his smirk as he heard his staff singing old human battle chants from old revolutions. He called upon the scanners, and soon the entire bridge could see the giant gray ships of what the humans named Grey Goo moving towards Terra. His second-in-command approached. Had of a speech, sir. What now, sir? The captain chuckled. <laughs> now we repay an old debt. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1559 Story number one. At all cost is a human-only expression. 
Written by Damage Dice DM. At all cost is a human expression. Now, I'm not saying that other species don't understand sacrifice. It's just that the other ones weigh the cost and benefit of their actions. Nowhere is there more prevalent in human culture than a military attitude towards civilian casualties. Now, they get plenty mad when they lose brothers and sisters at arms, but they are only species that does not specifically target civilians. Whether you agree with it or not, you do well to follow that lead or end up like the Julex did in the attack of the human colony on Postremo Filius V in 3186 PC. The war started the way the most do. A small human colony found an uninhabited planet and settled there, made it home and begun terraforming process. Note that none of the humans that were contributing efforts to this would live to see its completion when the great-great-grandchildren would be able to go outside and breathe clean air without protective suits by the time they were adults. Another human trait of working towards goals none would be around to see finished. They have some sayings about planting a tree that you will not enjoy the shade of. It's strange concept to most species. Around 20 years into the process, the planet caught the eye of the Judex, a race that I am told look like bipedal porcupines to the humans. They are what can only be described as a parasitic culture, stealing technology and worlds from other species. This strategy had served them well and, at this time, were one of the more powerful races in the galaxy. They saw that they had been a garbage planet was now, by their standards, a utopia. Even if by human standards, it was still a toxic environment. They demanded the humans evacuate their homes. When they refused, the Julix started orbital bombardment and blockaded the planet. The colony sent out a stress signal, but it was intercepted and communications were jammed. If it had not been for a random freighter that was passing by the system, seeing all the activity around the planet and reporting it, it would have been years before anyone knew what happened. The closest military ship was the Avis. More of a troop transport than a warship, it was assigned to the system near Postremo Filius V on the humanitarian mission. Most of its fighter craft replaced the transports with light armament for defense. Upon receiving a call from the freighter, they left orbit immediately, burning towards Postremo Filius V as fast as they could. During the trip, they learned that the Julex had the entire armada parked around Postremo Filius V, and the closest human reinforcements would be over a week away, even at FTL. But they were still on the way regardless. Long-range sensors on the Avis detected 27 warships in orbit clustered on the northern hemisphere in the Telltale Bombardment Formation. Captain Lisa Zinn called all available hands to the ship's hangar. Her voice rang clear in the room and was relayed through comms to all still at stations. There are 400,000 civilians on that planet, and for now, we are all they have. We have a plan, but it's one that I cannot in good conscience order you to carry out. It will be volunteer only. Anyone not willing to participate is welcome to take one of the 200 emergency pods. There'll be more than enough to keep you alive until reinforcements come to pick you up, and I will broadcast a message that you are in no way to be punished for your choice to stay behind. But if you choose to stay, no, and this is a one-way trip. You should contact your next of kin with any messages that you wish to leave them. They will be transmitted before we get into system, we have a lot of work to do, and no time to spare. If you're with me, 
Meet me here in an hour. Several hours later, Avis breached the room of the system, looking worse for wear, its rear armor plate stripped off and exposing the rear inner hull. The enemy was never going to see the back of the ship, anyways, and it was needed elsewhere. The Julix fleet did not move to intercept, possibly seeing a single transport ship as little threat, especially with them not having any ground force deployment on the planet. On board, the Avis captains and ensured that the crew messages were sent in triplicate, sure that they were received. She looked down the ship's shield status, showing a deep red areas in the rear that no longer had the plating that they had stripped off in the most extreme hull-speed spacewalk salvage history had ever seen. She had until this point intentionally ignored one of the screens, but as she looked towards it now, a sad smile crept on her face. Emergency life pod status. 200 available. The Avis came into weapons range, guns blazing, unleashing a full spread of laser fire and plasma turrets into the capital ship of the Dulux Armada. Minimal damage. Several Dulux cruisers broke formation to engage, closing the distance quickly. Captain Zinn opened a channel broadcasting full spectrum and the first mate dropped a needle on an ancient device on the bridge the captain had brought up from her quarters. A gift from her husband when she was given the position of captain of the Avis, the round black disc rotated slowly. The tune was set to a low drum and bagpipes. A sweet, smooth Irish woman's voice built as the song progressed. Scratches from the age of the machine accompanied the sound. The captain pounded her hand on the arm of a chair with a beat and sung along as she gave the signal, and the Avis began to barrel roll. As it did, a swarm of what from a distance looked like angry bees erupted from its belly as every transport, life pod, and spare munition fled its thrusters as she rolled aft, barreling towards the capital ship. The engines roared to life, and the transports, their holds bursting with fuel and improvised explosions covered in the slapped-on hull armor. The life pods had missiles welded to their exterior. The pilots fired them, accelerating the craft towards the unprepared Judex fleet, bending the soldiers to the seats for the last ride that they would ever take, as they all began to sing on the open channel as well. The sound of 1,700 soldiers singing and banging their fists to the Shannon's beat played on every receiver within Elijah. My love is called away from me to travel forth upon the sea. I fear he won't return to me. The men say, Sally, yo-ho. He fears not wind, nor sleet, nor hail. I beg him to stay, to no avail. The salt and sail find wind to his tail. Carry him far, yo-ho. One week later, several Terran ships broke into the system. They expected a fight, but what they found was a floating debris of 27 Tudix ships, 200 life pods, dozens of twisted transports, and the Avis listing aimlessly just beyond the Julix capital ship, broken in two. The Julix had taken a life of 37,000 settlers and 1,700 soldiers. The messages of the soldiers sent to their families began to be shared to the public with their permission. The rally cry began to crescendo on all human-held territories. Less than a year later, the human armada was parked over Julek's homeworld to accept their unconditional surrender. The papers were signed on board the human fleet's newest capital ship, Memento Avon, which was captained by Jando Zinn, Lisa Zinn's youngest son.
The terms of the treaty stipulated that the Tudics would be confined to their homeworld for a period of 2,000 years, and all stolen technology would be removed from their position and returned to its owners. End of story. Story number two. Human Hazing, written by Clonk 3D. Memo, Human Hazing, to manager level staff and above. Priority, urgent. Good rotation to you all. As you are all well aware, HR is planning on hiring hundreds of humans from recently established colony around the star known as New Soul 3. It has been discovered that part of the department onboarding procedures must be changed when it comes to humans. As you may be aware, humans come from a high-grav cradle. This means that they are incredibly dense. It also appears to mean that they are incredibly dense. This combined with the fact that they are persistent hunters by nature means that once you give them a command, they'll follow that command until completion. Thus, giving any human the initial onboarding command aptitude test is prohibited. So far, not a single human has failed to complete the assigned task no matter how impossible the task is. For example, one human was tasked with procuring an antimatter panini press. They somehow found someone willing to make an antimatter power supply, the kind used as backups and capital ships, and incorporate a panini press into it. The company spent three to the power of ten red credits to pay for the item. Another human spent four work cycles sweeping the dust collector room before the supervisor found them and told them to stop. They were supposed to be assembling phaser arrays, and we are still behind on phaser array assembly due to the long runtime of the test. The following characteristics should be considered the result of the initial onboarding command aptitude test. Dogged, loyal, creative, vindictive. The last one is because it seems that humans fully know the assigned task is impossible, and do it anyway as a retaliation to perceive slight of being given the test. Safety message to the memo. If it looks like goo... Then call the sanitation crew. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1560. Story number one. No pain, no gain. Written by Random 3X. Thresco kept low as bolts of highly concentrated ultraviolet light popped and whizzed overhead. He'd signed up to serve in the military a few years back, and one of the many things he had gained from the experience was regret. See the galaxy, serve and protect. So many slogans. And he had bought them hook, line, sinker. But all he did was stand around, twiddling his claws or have to deal with the rightfully protesting civilians. He had constantly wished for something interesting to happen. A battle, at least. Fate, though, seemed to have a sense of humor as two days before his term of volunteer service was meant to come to an end. War was declared. An emergency conscription order was issued, and all serving races had their terms extended till the end of the conflict. At first, Thurskull felt nothing but anticipation. Finally, a fight that he can dig his fangs into. Oh, how arrogant he was. He often hoped for a temporal anomaly to send him back so that he could stop his idiot younger self from signing up. His musings was interrupted by the scrambling form that dropped into the foxhole that he was lying in. He was a human. Amongst the races serving in the Allied system's military, the humans were the most laughable. 
physically weak, and barely sentient by some of the more intelligent race's standards, nothing at all unique nor interesting about them. Looking over at the human's face, he balked. The human was showing a threat display. He had to pause a moment to remember human showing its fangs meant that they were experiencing positive emotions. So we're going to take their position, sir? The human asked with a tilt of his head. Are you mad, human? Preskill cried out. Any race hit by those bolts would get burnt away rapidly. Well, uh, sitting here isn't going to do us much good. The human shouted back. His sentence was punctuated by a mortar shell landing nearby. We're under heavy fire. Human or you haven't noticed. Preskill roared. His temper starting to run short. Uh, no pain, no gain. The human said with a shrug. You can sit there, sir. I'll charge the line. The human shouted as he darted up and over the ridge and screamed a battle cry. Dreskel was paralyzed by what he had seen. The human must have been an insane one sent forwards to absorb fire while the actually sane warriors followed. Humans must be despicable indeed. Slowly, but surely, the cracks of bolts began to quieten. Cautiously, Dreskel poked his head over the ridge and was stunned to see the smoldering emplacement moving up and keeping low as he approached. He readied his carbonizer rifle. Drop your weapons. If you surrender now, I will guarantee your lives under the Intergalactic Treaty of Paris, Threskel shouted as he aimed at the dugout that was filled with corpses. In the middle stood the human. It took all of his effort not to puke up his meal from earlier. Standing in the middle was a near dozen bolts wounds was the human. Uh, uh, hello, sir. He saluted and stood upright. We must get you to the medivac, Dreskel shouted in a panic. Huh? Sir, these little burns aren't going to do much. Can't even feel them, the human said, baring its fangs again. Can't feel them, Dreskel repeated in shock. Adrenaline is really pumping right now. Could probably get my emplacements taken down up to a baker's dozen if I get one or more in, he replied with a shrug. You have taken down twelve emplacements already, Dreskel asked in a growing terror. Aye, sir. A little sunburn ain't killed anybody, the human paused. Wow. Ain't nobody I know of, at least, he quickly added. Sunburn, Dreskel repeated. Aye, sir. The little flashlights down break our skin. It seems that we are rather tough bastards, he replied, bashfully. Still, I must be off, sir. Me and my buddy are, are having a competition to see who can bag the most positions, the human said. Bearing his fangs again. Bzzzt. Hey, Mike. I just took on a heavy light cannon and got a killer tan. Also, I'm an eleven. A voice of his comm unit announced. You're up. Sorry, sir. I gotta go maintain my lead while I got it. The human said with a hasty salute as he turned and ran off. Wait, human. Do your wounds seriously not hurt? Dreskel asked. A little, but adrenaline is keeping it too barely noticeable. Regardless, as I said... No pain, no gain. He saluted one more time before running off into the distance. Thresco collapsed against the sandbags in shock. These humans were terrifying. They didn't care about injury. They seemed to have excellent resistance to UV rifles. Maybe he had misjudged them. Thinking about it, with this insane race on their side, they might be home by Glipmus, as the government said. The last thing he heard before settling in for the long haul was the boom of the artillery starting up. End of story. Story number two. 
Immortality written by Echoing Cascade. Death was curious about finding a body, something of a novelty given his profession. A man had entered an extremely remote location and seemingly died alone. Meeting someone stuck in a nearly impossible place to get to wasn't exactly new for death. In fact, he was often expected to show up there sooner or later. But there is the remote, and then there is this. Jonathan Fry, the richest man in the known galaxy, had entered the heart of a white dwarf star and had ceased to exist. Not, not to die, ceased to exist. This I gotta see. Death entered the star and was surprised to find a rather large room inside it, and sitting in front of him was Jonathan Fry, with a small corgi in his arms. I've been expecting you. We need to talk. Death sighed. This wasn't the first time someone had laid a trap for him. He made the move towards the man, but found himself unable to do so. Every time he moved so much, as a bone, his entire body splits into multiple images that would eventually coalesce back into the middle of the room. What is this? You are in a probability prison. A nexus of reality and unreality. The second you enter this room, the chances of death as a concept plummeted to zero. The only thing keeping you alive is the fact that I am looking at you. Death was speechless. He was quite literally one blink away from, well, dying. Do you understand the ramifications of your actions? Plurting reality into jeopardy. Risking the unraveling of causality. Dooming existence as we know it. Yes? My immortality. Death had seen this coming. What is the dream of those who have everything to have all the time in the world to enjoy it? You understand what you're asking of me? Jonathan shrugged. I am asking you to bend the rules or watch me break them. Death threw his hands in the air in defeat. Fine, I'll make you a model. Jonathan looked confused for a second. What? No, I mean my dog, Rufus. The small corgi started to lick his master's face at the mention of his name. Death wanted to protest. The human was risking some total of the universe to make his dog mortal. Then he remembered all the souls that he had reaped, how many had asked about their pets as the day drifted to the afterlife, how many had willingly died trying to save them and kept quiet. Very well, that is acceptable. Jonathan flipped the switch and death was no longer in a bubble of probability. He then picked up Rufus and looked him in the eye. You hear that, Rufus. You're going to live forever and ever. I'll leave everything in your name, and you'll live like a king for all of time. Rufus put Jonathan, not hard, but hard enough that he dropped him. What's wrong, buddy? Rufus began to bark at death, who nodded in understanding. He does not want to live forever, not without you. Jonathan grabbed the little dog and hugged him as he began to cry. You can... Can you make it so that he lives as long as I do, then? That is not a problem, but how can I be certain no one is going to try and do this again? Death pointed to the impossible room. It cost me 1.43 trillion credits and won't last past today. 
The core concept was created by the criminally insane genius who died after finishing the project. And besides, I doubt that you would fall for the same trick twice. Death grinned as only he could, bowed to the man who'd bested him and left. Jonathan Fryer lived to be 213 years old, always accompanied with a small corgi named Rufus, which he insisted was a clone of a clone of his childhood pet. When asked why he'd built the impossible room, what had possessed him to spend half of his fortune on that project? Journalists recorded that his answer had been, I did it for my god, but only death and a very, very long-lived corgi knew the truth. And the last word was a typo. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1561 We are not alone, but we are lonely. Written by JCB112 We were fools to believe that the alien mind would be in any way similar to that of a human's. We had deluded ourselves into our elaborate and carefully constructed fictions that the alien would mimic us in how we attained the wonders unlocked by the unlimited potential of our sapiens. We had lied to ourselves for centuries, to the point that we had contingency after contingency for the inevitable first contact. First, we prepared for what would happen if a far superior force was to arrive on our doorstep. And that never happened. Then we prepared for what we would do if we were to encounter an alien polity in passing, in message, or through some mode of indirect communication. But that never happened. Once we'd mastered FTL, we would then band and brainstorm elaborate scenarios on what we might do should we physically encounter any aliens on or above our playing field. But even that didn't happen for decades centuries and now millennia we'd planned and planned and planned to the point that we were delineating between what was the plot for the next major holofilm series and what was the next big government sanction planned for another inevitable first contact scenario become nigh impossible it had been a literal millennia since we left earth before we finally came into contact with the first forms of alien life. Actual, intelligent life. Not some bacteria in a pond, or some bird soaring above an arboreal forest, but an honest-to-God's actual intelligent life. Yet, the life we found wasn't the sprawling interstellar empire that we'd come to expect, nor was it a localized power and an interstellar heyday or even post-war run-down hellhole of roving pirates and bandits. No. Instead, what we found were primitives. Primitives that could have very well have been overlooked by our explorers. Were they not observant enough to spot small plumes of smoke scattered in geometrically distant patterns dotting the planet? In our haste to explore the stars, we'd failed to account for the primitives. Our primary senses were focused around the unmistakable traces left behind by technological advanced civilizations. Our simplest form of detection was radio, followed by measuring distant emissions generated by industrial civilizations. Carbon, methane, and natural emissions that would taint an atmosphere. And for the far more observant, 
taking telemetry of the planet to discern irregular surface patterns correlating with the expansion of cities or bunkers. Indeed, our detection systems for the simplest of civilizations had been algorithmic interpretation of farmland from orbital imaging which would have indicated an agrarian civilization. We thought we prepared for every eventuality, but it was clear that we had not. It was at this point that we turned our exploration ships back towards the epicenter where our efforts began. We backtracked, combing through star systems and clusters, tracing over every step, scanning each life-bearing world with meticulous scrutiny. It was then, and only then, that we realized the grave oversight in our previous approach. For at the end of this re-examination, three-quarters of all catalog life-bearing worlds were reclassified as sapient-bearing the repercussions of which shocked the Earth and her colonies. The implications of which were unknown at the time, but would quickly bring humanity into a state of collective existential dread. For the first contact missions initiated with the aliens revealed a common yet disturbing trend. These civilizations, if they could even be called that, had existed not for a mere few millennia, or even tens of millennia, but had in fact existed far longer than the total extent of human race's pre-recorded history. Long before our ancestral line had even crawled out of the primordial soup. These aliens, these people, hadn't fallen from grace either. There was no evidence as to some systemic collapse or any trace of advanced technologies. They'd all, well... And truly, merely stagnated. A great filter scenario was suggested, and it was later confirmed by our xenoanthropologists. These aliens, whilst proven to be indeed intelligent and quite reasonable, had answered similarly when pressed to the question of their stagnant state of being. The translation software wasn't perfect, but it effectively boiled down to this one universal sentiment. We don't need anything else. They were satisfied with what they had. They desired for no more than their next hunt, their next feast, and the continued survival of their tribes. They wanted nothing but simple continuity and held no uh, drive. It was difficult to put into words, even more convoluted to read the thick and frankly jargon-filled reports of those xenoanthropologists, save for this one excerpt from the conclusionary statements in their now groundbreaking paper. It is within these findings that the Council for the Study and Assessment of Xenological Anthropologic Studies has deemed the state of pre-agrarian existence to be the status quo. Humanity, in stark contrast, remains the only species to breach what we are now calling the creative gap, where these aliens remain satiated by their limited abilities taking the safest decisions to ensure the continuation of the limited societies. Humanity has instead consistently taken risk after risk for gains that would be considered unimaginable to these aliens. The study concludes that humanity is the outlier, and the aliens are in fact the norm. The aliens have taken the path of least resistance, while humanity has, and still is, resisting the wounds of nature herself. It's difficult to imagine, perhaps even impossible to really picture how alien these aliens truly are. Trapped in their worlds, trapped 
in their villages, in their small communities, not incapable of understanding our sciences and technologies, no. In fact, some of them seem to be able to pick it up quite quickly. Instead, they are unwilling to do so. Even the illegal offers from some of our disgraced and rebellious scientists were turned down without exception. Offers ranging from visiting space to the introduction of farming, of writing, of industry, and the keys to civilization were all turned down without hesitation. We stand now as sole inheritors of the Milky Way, alone and lost in our ambitions for a greater future. It was clear that many of us wanted there to be some sort of roadblock for all our expansion. We wanted the opposition. We craved the challenge. We wanted to be the underdog fighting against some totalitarian hegemonic alien empire. We wanted to be a part of the space-faring interstellar federation as the young, uppity, and feisty species. We wanted to kick, scream, claw, and connive our way to the very top. We wanted to be the outlier, but not like this. Yet, here we were, at the very top, by the very nature of our existence. It wasn't fair. It was only yesterday, however, that we received a radio signal, not from our own galaxy, not from our own exploration vessels leaving the Milky Way, but instead, deep within Andromeda, an alien signal. One which bred the same sense of despair eerily similar to our own. Is there anyone out there? Please, anyone. We are the Iltaxi of the Iltaxi Federation Union. We wish for peaceful dialogue, for any dialogue. If anyone is out there, please respond. Our home galaxy is empty. And uh, we are the only ones. It was then that we realized... Perhaps then, it wasn't the fate of interstellar empires to be plentiful in a single galaxy. Perhaps then, the Great Filter wasn't truly at all encompassing. Perhaps, our dreams of an interstellar alliance was in fact possible. We sent a message back, one that was limited by our transponders and our current technology, but one that held the hopes and dreams of cumulative experience of an entire civilization. Hill Taxi, we read your message loud and clear. Greetings from humanity. Greetings from the humans of the United Earth and her colonies. We are here, and our home galaxy is likewise empty. But know this, you're not the only ones. You are not alone. End of story. I just quickly want to thank the Tier 5 patrons and channel members. Alithia Barkey, Ken Maxwell, Casper Arnholtz, Albard and Gaster, Arcadian, Lord Azrakal, and Joe Kambaka.